Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome to the Growing With Fishes podcast, episode 293. Um, We have a returning guest today, uh, Mike West. Thanks for joining us, Mike. What's up, Steve? Long time no see. Yeah, man. Uh, He actually uh, also had a chance to come take a class that we taught down at uh, at Dutch Bloom's uh, farm. And uh, we're going to... What was that, 2019? 2018, 2019, I think. Yeah, 2018 and 2019. Yeah, June, June, I think, June of 2019. Yep. Yep. Before the plague. The before times. The before before times. Back when biology was respected, before ignorant trolls decided to lock us all down instead of spreading biodiversity in our gut microbiome. So... (laughs) Oh, we, we've very much covered uh, with Kevin McKernan some of the different uh, aspects of that particular topic and uh, gotten to some of the other other topics on that. So um, thanks well, a lot. Many of the cannabis growers know this, right? This isn't the first plague that humans have dealt with. It won't be the last. Just like it's it's not the first time your plant's got some sort of pest on it, it won't be the last. The key is you know developing an ecosystem so that when these bad bacteria, bad fungal, but bad viruses start getting spread, that we can respond with it, response, re- respond to it responsibly, have, have societal systems in place that we can, that way we can mitigate those risks by, I, I don't think necessarily lockdowns are more than as necessary as they became, but we do need a, the ability to be able to, you know, test, identify who, who is sick and be able to treat those people, whether it be with you know, FDA approved drugs or not. If we have scientific studies showing that there's, you know, one thing or another showing antidotal beneficial properties, then we need to be able to show that. Um, I guess I'll, I'll get started. How, how did I get in the industry, right? I, um, I got into the cannabis industry because I have had several family members with severe medical conditions that would have been benefited by cannabis had it been available. Um, my sister had severe epilepsy. I've actually had multiple family members with cancer, Alzheimer's. Um, I'm actually going to, to the celebration of life for my uncle this weekend, because he also is, you know, suffering from a terminal brain cancer that has actually been treated with a water soluble injectable THC, but has not been treated, doesn't have an FDA approved treatment yet. So I got really interested in cannabis and the early 2000s um, after reading Ethan Russo's paper on treatment of cannabinoids for non-treatable epilepsy and having my sister had epilepsy I got real interested in you know how can we take cannabis and since I had a family of doctors I would my interest was okay how can I take cannabis and herbal plants extract it turn it into a potential pharmaceutical or nutraceutical or even FDA approvable drug that way we can make cannabinoid drugs available to patients and doctors. Uh, I had a family of doctors and um, most of those doctors, when they found out that I was using herbal cannabis, I essentially became the black sheep of the family because everyone else in the family used FDA approved drugs. So I ended up moving to Colorado because I knew Colorado had a medical program like California at the time in the late 2000s, early or late 90s, early 2000s. 
and became one of the first couple hundred medical patients in Colorado. Um, ended up getting really active at the while I was at university, organizing some normal chapters that held a bunch of the 420 events in Colorado in the 2000s through the 2000 teens. And then after graduating from college in 2010, um, the medical industry had just been legalized in 2008 in Colorado. So I ended up partnering with a law firm who was my criminal defense attorney back when I got arrested. And he and I ended up starting to help medical growers, medical patients start going through the process of getting their medical marijuana business licenses in Colorado. So ended up helping a couple of companies in Colorado transition from the black market into the medical market. And then leading up into 2012 with the passage of 64 in Colorado, you know, prepping those companies to be able to apply for the recreational licenses. But I was smart enough to be able to, you know, having somewhat of a legal background, legal degree, I started looking at the laws in Colorado, Oregon, and Washington. And one big glaring thing that kind of popped out to me was that, you know, Colorado was going to be vertically integrated, whereas Washington State was going to be vertically separated. Um, for, the, for the listeners that don't know, vertical integration means that if you own a retail store in Colorado from 2008 till I believe 2014 or 15, 80% of the cannabis that you sold at your retail store had to, 70% of the cannabis grown at your retail store had to be grown by your own grow. Well, I'm not a retail guy. I'm a farmer, primarily also an extractor. I'm a chemist, traditionally by college training. So I knew that like, if I'm a producer, manufacturer, and an extractor, the, the likelihood of being successful in Colorado when I, I can only sell through the retail shops that I own was really limited. So back in the early 20 teens, moved up to Washington State, ended up helping a medical company transition into the recreational market, um, then ended up building a grow as well as a extraction lab one of the first CO2 extraction labs in Seattle, Washington state that ended up getting licensed. So I've been running extraction labs since about 2008, but solvent extraction labs since about 2010. Um, and since then it's really been a whirlwind. We've built labs in Colorado, Washington, Oregon. I've consulted labs in about a dozen other States and currently actually in Canada. Um, but what really kind of got me interested in it was the fact that, Hey, we, we have a plant that hasn't been researched for almost a hundred years. And we now have modern day scientific technology a hundred years ago, pre-prohibition, we didn't have solvent extraction, supercritical extraction. The only thing that was really available were the traditional extracts, you know, things like dry sieve, pressed, pressed hash and charas. Um, with very small availability of things like tincture. So tinctures date back hundreds, if not thousands of years. Um, so what I really wanted to do was try and follow that thing where, hey, we, we're taking cannabis, which has been prohibited, transitioning to um, transitioning cannabis into products like extracts or isolates that could then essentially be tested, formulated into medical products, and um, then 
essentially distributed through medical channels. I, at the time, I didn't think they would be able to have recreational products, um, but the transition of recreational certainly allowed the industry to grow a little bit faster. The smart recreational companies realized they, they had to be able to cater to medical patients as well as recreational consumers. So some of the most uh, successful multi-state operators, and we can talk about those a little bit later, um, are ones that really focused on not only being able to produce the recreation products for the consumers, but also be able to have the medical patients, products for the medical patients. Um, random, random chat question. What best method for crashing uh, diamonds with ethanol or where to get clean butane? Before, so, uh, hold on. Before you get into that, I did want to just mention uh, I had kind of forgotten about the 70% rule there in Colorado. It, it, it's been a while since I worked in Colorado. Um, that I thought that wasn't necessary. While it is an interesting and maybe overly burdensome regulation, I thought it was kind of cool because it kind of had this forced honesty where people kind of had to put up or shut up. They had to either prove that they knew what they're doing or they, you know, were kind of kicked out of the market. And I thought, at least in terms of that extent, I thought that was kind of a great point to that way of regulating it. And I haven't seen that model replicated in other markets. And I just wanted to kind of touch on that real quick before we totally change subjects. Yeah, a lot, a lot of the new, a lot of the more heavily regulated East Coast markets are also doing some form of vertical integration. Um, it is beneficial if you're, you know, and, and I think that it, every retail shop should be able to build relationships with producers. Canada doesn't allow retail sh shops to buy from a farm. So I, here in Canada, I have to sell to the government, the government that the provincial governments then sell to the government stores or private retail stores. So I don't actually get to build that rapport or relationships with the retail stores. Um, I think that's one of the biggest issues here in Canada currently. But the, the inverse side of that is, you know, if I'm a medical producer trying to produce medical products, I want to be able to have my products in 50 stores, not just the stores owned by my business partners. So I, th I think the Colorado 70% rule was limited to flour. You can still extract manufacture products. Um, but you didn't, you weren't allowed to sell flour B2B. So if I was a extractor trying to buy seed at the time, CBD flour wasn't really available. So I literally would have to grow my own CBD flour in my medical garden just to be able to pr process it into a variety of different tinctures or manufactured products. Um, I, I think in Colorado, they opened it up so you can, you can, you can have, non-vertically integrated grows starting in 2015 or 16. So now there are grows that kind of, um, you know, good growers focus on growing. What I, what I saw happen in that the years following legalization in Colorado was that there was a lot of shotgun marriages where great growers who love to grow and produce good products had to build relationships, sometimes strained relationships with dietary and retail stores. And you essentially, the growers became essentially beholden to that retail store for that distribution outlet um, that created natural born monopolies in the same way that some of the multi-state operators have essentially created monopolies in their states by having limited numbers of producer or retail licenses. So the, these are all what I call stumbling blocks on the road to legalization. You know, every state is going to write their own rules. Those rules are going to get put into place, those, that state or market becomes a laboratory of democracy. And then the markets or states that pass rules down the road, they're gonna look at those earlier adopting states and say, hey, 
you know, this worked really well for Colorado and Oregon, this worked really well in Washington, this worked well in California. Let's hybridize these rules into, for example, our East Coast new markets rules. That way we can mitigate some of the negative economic side effects of um, potentially overproduction, potential black market backdoor sailing, et cetera, while at the same time being able to create a fair and equitable market while minimizing, hopefully, the things like crony capitalism, monopoliz monopolization, and unfair business practice by unscrupulous um, bankers or businessmen. So, you know, what we can talk about, what I figured we talked about tonight, obviously, we'll go deep in this solvent extraction, extraction processing, how to do it sustainably, but also talk kind of talking about many of the growers that I, I see watching these videos are home growers, medical growers, and you know, being able to have those tools or kind of hear somebody like me who's gone not only through the state regulated, but also federally regulated licensing. Um, there is a light at the tunnel. It sucks. We, we were talking before the show. It, it sucks having to spend hours and weeks writing SOPs, writing security plans, doing the business licenses. But you only got to do that up until the point that you get your license and then your SOPs are written, you're just revising those SOPs, constantly updating them, integrating them and making them better. So oftentimes, many times within the market, there's these, this cyclical market cycle where you know, a new market get, passes new rules and regulations. There's a huge rush for green rushers to get into the industry. The OGs have already been in the industry. They just need a transition. And oftentimes we need to be able to say that, see that like, hey, there's, way, there's a pathway to legalization. There's a pathway to success. And even though a significant percentage of the market's going to fail as a business, there are going to be ways that you can kind of swim, keep, just keep swimming as Dory used to say, and eventually get to the headwaters where, you know, you're going to be successful. You're going to be producing quality product. It's going to be produced on a regulated market. And even though you're not going to be making as big of margins as we did in the black market, you know, having a smaller margin allows for us to grow at a much larger pace and to a point that, you know, I'm currently working with a company that's exporting to three countries. Um, I've, I've even had a couple of CBD companies down in the U.S. that are exporting to places like South America, Asia, and Europe. Um, so there are ways that there are companies in the U.S. as well as in Canada that have not only gotten federal license, but are in the process of exporting product abroad. It's just a ton of paperwork that people shouldn't be afraid to do. You just need to find find the advisors, find the consultants, you know, find find the lawyers that are familiar with with permitting for in, importing and exporting, finding the people that are familiar with uh, sanitation for getting through the FDA. Because one of the things that I've seen here in Canada being a federal program is that, you know, getting the provincial licenses, getting your business license on a local level, very similar to down in the States. I still got to go do all the building permits, you know, talk, convince the local authority having jurisdiction, the city council or jurisdiction that, hey, here's what we're doing. Here's how we're doing it safely. Here's how we're going to mitigate the risks. Here's how we're going to meet all the local codes. But then you start adding the provincial and federal rules. And, you know, those federal rules are things like down in the States going to be regulated, things that are going to be regulated by OSHA. 
And OSHA cannot regulate the cannabis industry, should be, but cannot legally regulate the cannabis industry until after federal law passes. So what's likely going to happen is that when federal law passes, you're going to see a whole wave of regulators like OSHA, the FDA, the EPA coming out and actually citing and having to push these companies to transition from what they what may be state compliant but is not considered GMP or GPP, good production practice, good manufacturing practices. Um, and even though there are, you know, it sucks dealing with the federal regulators. Ultimately, those federal regulators are there to protect the customers. So we need to be able to have some ability to protect the customers because the last thing we want to do is have unscrupulous businesses spraying pesticides on, on plant material without getting into the public and causing some sort of national overregulation. Um, so, yeah, main, main reason why I got into solvent extraction was, you know, because I was interested in isolating those active compounds, um, primarily with cannabinoids, but as, as I came to learn later, the cannabinoids, terpenoids, polyphenols, terp, uh, thiols, and all the other beautiful terpenoids that contribute to the entourage effect. Um, but back when I was in college, I was looking at, okay, what are the ways that we can make it an FDA approvable drug? And unfortunately, the FDA in its approval process is fairly limited in scope. They do not like produ producing or researching or regulating or doing what's called double-blind placebo trials in uh, phase one through phase three clinical trials. They don't like to do that when you have a drug that's got multiple active ingredients. So what the FDA is really looking for, if you want to produce something on a federal, federally regulated insurable level is monomolecular isolates. So when you look at companies like GW Pharma that actually got Marinol and Sativex approved, they went through the uh, process where they would actually cultivate cannabis in the UK, extract it to its monomolecular distillate or isolate form, formulate that into things like Marinol, which is a pill and grape with grapeseed oil tincture in a little small round gel cap, Sativex, which is a, I believe, inject, uh, nasal injection, um, but monomolecular. So it's pure CBD and I believe Sativex or pure so, THC and Sativex, pure CBD. Can I, can I ask you a question on this? Is what's the difference? Because I've gotten in debates on this. What's the difference between Marinol and Sativex? One, somebody told me that Marinol is a synthetically structured molecule versus Sativex, which is an extract. Is that true? Yes. So when Marinol, before Marinol was uh, FDA approved, uh, I believe, uh, I don't know this from firsthand, so this is all hearsay, but I, I believe as I heard from the doctor, um, before it, cannabis was FDA approved as Marinol, they could not actually cultivate cannabis and send it through the drug trials. So what they, what they ended up producing is essentially, there's more than one way to produce THC. There's actually ways that you can synthetically produce THC from olive tillic acid. Um, and essentially one of the precursor terpenoids that are found within cannabis. You, know, you, can, you can actually extract that out of a couple of different plants and lichens. So in order to get the Marinol approved, they actually started with a synthetic conversion of dronabinol, and it's just basically producing THC using chemistry. 
and then use that synthetically produced THC to go through the drug trials and pursue their first series of patents. After they had proven the efficacy and safety of THC, um, they were able to go through phase one, phase two, phase three. Phase three is where you actually give it to the humans. They were able to show the safety and efficacy of that synthetically derived THC molecule. And after the FDA had the documentation that, hey, nobody's overdosed on, on this, we can't determine an LD50, you know, a level at which we can kill people. They, by law, after FDA approving THC in its synthetic form, had to allow that producer to be able to produce THC in whatever way was easiest. So obviously it's, I can produce THC using chemistry, but it's going to be a lot energetically less demanding using producing THC via photosynthesis. So when, when they came out with their second generation of pharmaceuticals, uh, Sativex, they actually switched from synthetically derived to THC isolated from the plant matter. Um, we've, we've seen the same thing more recently with the hemp trend where people are converting CBD into THC or Delta-8 THC, as well as converting products like uh, CBGV or CBDV into THCV. So there are many different chemical ways that we can essentially take cannabinoids, man, using chemistry, manipulate them into a, either adding a, changing the location of a double bond, adding bonds within their chemical structure. But all of this falls above and beyond what we know of as cultivation and falls according to the FDA and DEA into the manufacturing of drugs. Um, and in general, the, the DEA and FDA, if you're going to be manufacturing drugs, they want you to be able to have some form of regulatory oversight. Um, here, here in the in the U.S. or in the U.S., that regulatory oversight is generally handled by the states. Although we are seeing some players in the hemp industry getting stern warning letters from companies like or groups like the FDA or DEA. Um, basically saying, hey, you can't make medical claims. You, if you're going to be make, making medical claims on your CBD products, you have to go through the drug trials. Um, you have to get NIDA to supply the drugs and go through the double blind placebo trials, phase one, two, three. And once you can actually have the uh, monomolecular isolates and drug trials documentation, then we can actually review and approve that use. Um, so you know, the, the way that they were originally doing their isolates was actually a chromatographic isolation. So going through a solvent extraction, generally with ethanol, after you go through the ethanol, go through a fractional distillation, what we call producing distillate. Um, and then on the THC side, that distillate could essentially be cleaned up using chromatography to produce a pure THC uh, fraction or in the case of CBD, a pure CBD fraction. So there was a little bit, there was a question earlier for best way of producing uh, diamonds. The best explanation for producing diamonds is much like producing rock candy. Um, you need to supersaturate your solution regardless of what solvent you're using. You know, I prefer alkenes because they have a lower boiling point, but you can use ethanol. If, if you were going to be using ethanol, what I would try and do is vacuum distill the ethanol off while keeping your boiling flask as cold as possible, continually adding 
a saturated solution and then constantly increasing the uh, saturation of that solution so that the THC precipitates onto itself. My favorite solution for producing diamonds is going to be probably butane, propane, or pentane. I prefer pentane, although many people have, in many of these pictures that we're showing, is a butane, butane extraction. So what they'll actually do is do a butane extraction, do it at a very cold temperature to minimize the lipids and waxes from getting extracted, generally send it through a series of filters and likely in some of these whiter pictures, a, what's called chromatography the CRC color remediation chromatography column, um, which is a media that actually has uh, properties much like a filter or an RO filter. It's going to absorb the polyphenols, the carotenoids and the phospholipids that get extracted in your solvent. So once you've essentially used that media to absorb all the undesirables, you can pump that THC solution into your collection vessel slowly boil off your solvent while continually adding greater amounts of saturated solution. And that just like growing rock candy, what you do, you know, boil, boil hot water, hot water is going to absorb lots of sugar as that water cools, the water is going to hold less and less of that sugar, forcing that sugar to come out of solution, precipitate growing that rock candy. Same thing happens with THCA and CBD. THC and CBDA don't like to form a crystalline lattice structure, but THCA and CBD happen to. So yeah, as shown in this picture, we, we take a crude oil that's essentially our THC oil that's dissolved in a media or dissolved in a solution. We pump that through the filter media here. Generally that filter media is a combination of uh, chromatographic silica, bentonite clay, uh, some people use things like activated charcoal. Um, there's even th people that are using uh, fryer grease, magnesium silicates, because each of those actually has properties that'll absorb the undesirable compounds while allowing the nonpolar cannabinoids to pass through. At the bottom of that filter media, there's a filter paper, generally that's less than two microns, ideally. And then you've got a filter plate that holds everything in place. The only thing that's getting through there is going to be your cannabinoids and your solvent solution that you can then distill off. Um, so, yeah, so the, they're, the reason why a lot of people are using things like ethanol instead of butane, propane, pentane, or heptane is because uh, ethanol is well known to many of the fire marshals. If I go to a fire marshal in a rural jurisdiction, which I've done and said, hey, I'm building a giant alcohol still, they're going to know what I'm talking about. When I go to a fire marshal in a relatively rural jurisdiction and say, hey, I'm going to be doing a chromatographic column of hydrocarbons following a supercritical extraction, they're going to think I'm building an oil refinery. And they're going to be worried that I'm going to be spilling oil or solvents into the watershed. So oftentimes, Many of their early regulators, you know, think people like fire marshals are relatively standoffish on using flammable solvents, things like butane, propane, pentane, hexane, heptane, because they have to be done in what's called a C1D1 environment, class one, division one, which basically means you have to do that processing in a laboratory built and designed to be able to handle that flammable and potentially explosive solvent. Not only that, but you get into weird zoning laws and standoff from main roads. When, you, when you're talking about, so say if I want to do a really large facility, 
I have to have hundreds of gallons of ethanol or butane or propane. And when you hit a certain thresholds with, and I'm not going to get into those because I don't want to get us on a whole other list that I'm sure both of us are already on, but um, uh, basically you have different thresholds when you have different, you know, 500 gallons, thousand gallons, whatever, whatever, whatever. Um, that you have have to be a half a mile or a mile away from the road or other you know domestic residential areas or other things so it gets really wonky zoning wise and people often don't think about that when they're planning their extraction facilities especially when they're talking about future scaling yeah so many many people just think hey if i'm if i'm going to spill my solvent on the ground i'm going to turn on my fan and it's just going to blow it outside well if you actually dig dig into the osha the epa rules you can't just let it blow off. You either, if you're going to blow it off through, through your ventilation stack, you actually have to have what's called a spark arrestor, basically something to burn that material, convert it from a flammable gas into carbon dioxide on your exhaust port. But more importantly, in order to protect the environment, there are federal rules in place that actually say, hey, if you're going to have 100 gallons of, of flammable solvent in your facility, you have to have not only primary containment to take it stored in, but also secondary, tertiary, and depending on how much solvent you have, further layers of containment. So that if, you know, if I have a 100 gallon tank of something and accidentally cut it, I've got a 120 gallon reservoir to capture that solvent directly beneath it. And even if that for some reason has the drain port open, I have another containment say a tank farm sitting around my tank farm to ca then capture anything that spills over because you know I, before I, I got into the cannabis sector before it was legal to have a job in the cannabis sector and i was just a medical patient i actually worked in the, the biofuels and oil industry so i got to learn many of the different types of oil refining that we are now doing in the essential oil industry um but it's a lot more heavily regulated in the oil industry because you're dealing with you know, thousands of gallons as opposed to liters. Many people in the cannabis industry in the US because they're not federally regulated have, have yet to sit down with, with groups like industrial hygienists or OSHA, OSHA auditors or FDA, FDA auditors, GMP auditors. And all of this stuff is going to create a come to reckoning when the federal doors are kicked open. I, I'm not going to hold my breath for federal laws, but when federal law passes and allows interstate, I have facilities that are ready to start exporting either interstate or internationally. They're built to GMP code. They're built to EU GMP code. And as soon as I can start shipping from the West Coast to the East Coast, we will. But we, we can't until federal law changed. That's actually why I moved up to Canada a few years ago in 2019 was because, you know, after building a couple of relatively successful companies in the Midwest, in Washington, Colorado, I, when Canada passed their federal law, I kind of gave myself the choice. Okay, do I move to California and get in California's rec scene or do I move to Canada? Well, California has a more established medical scene but they're gonna be limited to their, their state boundaries. Canada has the same population as California. It's a lot bigger geographically. So shipping product across the country is a pain, and pain. Dealing with the provincial distribution boards is a pain, but I can export to Europe. I can export to Israel. I can export to, so 
there was actually a greater potential of growth here in Canada than many of the U.S. companies are going to be able to grow in the next five years. So, yeah, after building in Zimbabwe, we bought a pharmaceutical license in Zimbabwe. We can automatically distribute to 29 countries, you know, and it's not between South Africa and Zimbabwe. You know, we can we can do whatever we want to. So uh, was that a public public pharma company? No. No, this was actually, we bought, um, it's a privately held company, but we purchased a uh, formal Johnson, formerly uh, owned Johnson and Johnson company medical uh, pharmaceutical license. So nice. Nice. Yeah. So yeah, that's to to knock out somebody like that. You know what I mean? Well, and you know, we'll, we'll, we'll call this Mike's tip for, for OGs getting into the cannabis sector. Um, tip number one, right? There's going to be a lot of green rushes that get into the cannabis industry that don't know how to produce, don't know how to grow quality. They're going to spend. Um, I just saw a facility here in Canada, in Alberta, one of the largest publicly traded companies. I hearsay, but I, I heard they spent somewhere between fifteen and twenty-five million dollars building this facility, and they sold it on an online auction for three million dollars in the last three months so I know exactly you're talking about because i walked through it when i was out there <laughs> yeah you have you you have you have so for those of you that are watching this video and want to get into the industry but maybe a couple of years behind maybe um didn't have the financial resources to get in with the first round of licenses i've seen tons of licenses for sale in Washington, in Oregon, in Colorado, that are, I don't want to say pennies on the dollar, but a a fraction of the value of what they were originally raising their CapEx for. So they came out saying, oh, we're going to be a $20 million company. Three years later, they didn't produce the quality. They they ended up mothballing their facility. Their head grower got fucked over, so left and ended up selling that facility to a new grower who actually knew how to grow for a song and then months later that facility ends up producing quality um yeah so there was a question about de-waxing um is it a must well it's not a must if you like smoking mints if you like smoking lipids don't do it um i for one care about my lungs and would prefer to smoke as few of those lipids as possible so let me, let me break that down for everybody. Um, when I use a solvent or mechanical separation of those glandular trichromes, you're producing, everyone knows what a trichrome is, right? It looks like a little ball sphere. Within that sphere are what's called missiles and vacuoles, plastids that essentially produce those terpenoid precursors. Those terpenoid precursors go from the base cell into the... Um, vesicle where the two precursors bind together, um, become the cannabinoids or terpenoids, and they're stored in that glandular trichrome because they actually will break down plant matter and kill the beneficial bacteria. So the plants produce those glandular trichromes to protect the plant and its microbacteria from the essential oil producing that trichrome. When we use mechanical separation, we're breaking that glandular trichrome off the stalk and essentially concentrating glandular trichromes 
that contain the essential oils in a waxy cuticle envelope. So when we go to press bubble hash or dry sift into products like rosin, what we're essentially doing is extruding those essential oils, the cannabinoids and terpenes from that waxy cuticle. Now, depending on what temperature you, pre you press your rosin at, you can actually melt because if, if it's hot enough, you'll reach the melting point of some of those lipids and waxes. And those lipids and waxes then can get carried through your extract into your concentrated rosin. Uh, in the solvent realm and why it's become so popular with the diamond production, when I use a solvent to dissolve those essential oils, many of those solvents also dissolve things like esters, lipids, waxes, um, polyphenols, terpenes, and phospholipids. So when I talk about the trichrome, the, the solvent will actually dissolve the waxy cuticle oil on the outside, as well as some of the cell walls of those plastids that contain things like phospholipids. That's then going to get extracted into your solution of solvent with your cannabinoids. When you boil off that solution, you're generally left, back in the day, we called it a wax, an earwax, or a honeycomb, but it's basically a cannabinoid extract that's going to range anywhere from 50 to 85% total potency with some terpenes in it, and then anywhere from 5 to 25% lipids, waxes. Yeah, there we go. So you know, your, your hash is essentially going to be a, a conglomeration of all of those cells. When we press that cell using heat and pressure in the process that, that the industry calls rosin, we're extruding the essential oils from those secretory vesicles. But if you are, if you press your rosin at a hot enough temperature, you can actually reach the melting point of your lipids and waxes. Um, so that ideally, as with all things, the, the slower and slower you press your rosin, the less of those triglycerides and diglycerides will end up getting extracted to higher quality rosin. The same is true with solvent extraction. If I use a heated solvent, it's going to have more of that energy to dissolve the oils, lipids, and waxes than if I use a chilled solvent. So in the 20, uh, I think it was about 20, 10, 2012, it kind of became popular to start de-waxing, making shatter. Um, it, people started doing it as early as 2007, but it became kind of a commercial product in Colorado and Oregon and Cali in the early 2000s. So what people started doing in the... Two 2010, 2011, I think is when I first saw it in Colorado. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, so what people started doing was after they did, they got their cannabinoids and waxes into solution, they would chill that solution down. And, you know, if you think about, you know, taking a dish of butter that's warm, it's going to be melted. If I put that dish of butter at room temperature, it's going to start to coagulate, start to turn solid. Well, I put it in the fridge, it's going to just turn kind of into its soft buttery consistency. If I put it into a freezer, it's going to freeze solid. Same thing's true with all the lipids and uh, waxes that are in cannabis extracts. When it's in that solution, um, it's, if the solution's heated, it's going to be really hard for those waxes to precipitate out. When you chill that solution in the process that's called winterization, you're actually forcing those lipids that are, depending on its molecular mass, 
to start coagulating, sticking to each other. And then we can essentially filter that out. If you do not filter those waxes out, those waxes are going to entrain the THC molecule, right? They're going to hold the THC molecule inside those waxes, not allowing you to produce those uh, diamonds. So if you leave things like diglycerides in there, you'll produce a sappy shatter, but you won't be able to produce those diamonds. So we would just sum it up. We could not produce crystalline monomolecular THC until after we started doing the winterization process. So the only way you can kind of skip winterization is if you're doing an extraction at a temperature cold enough to not extract those waxes and lipids in the first place. So many of the butane and propane extractors have started extracting at negative 20. That allows for them to essentially freeze uh, the waxes on the plant matter. The THC becomes soluble, but most of those triglycerides do not. Some of the diglycerides do, but uh, monoglycerides as well, but the, most of the triglycerides, large molecular weight waxes will essentially get frozen in solution um, and not be able to be extracted. Now, with, when CO2 kind of became popular, because CO2 is generally done at a little bit higher of a temperature, the boiling point of CO2 in Fahrenheit's 89 degrees. Uh, so you're essentially heating your solution to make it force into supercritical. So many people who were doing CO2 extraction had to winterize their solution, generally in an ethanol, ethanolic solution. But you could also do use things like uh, methanol, heptane, hexane, pentane, if you had the proper C1, D1 uh, fume hoods. So generally people had to winterize if they were going to make a shatter and then the explosion of hemp in the middle of the 20 teens is what led a lot of the people to start looking at chromatographic isolation of monomolecular thc and cbd which then led into the production of thc uh, what we call diamonds so yeah, I, I started pheno hunting, breeding CBD strains after getting some hybrids that Ringo made in the early 2000s. Um, I do really well with a actually a one-to-one, -one, so CBD and THC. Um, I find that it kind of helps reduce my stutters, my uh, disabilities, while at the same time be allowing me to be relatively productive. Um, and then obviously transition into THC in the evening times when I'm trying to go to bed, turn off my hyperactive brain and chill the fuck out. So the, uh, so yeah, the lost my train of thought diamonds. Um, so what we ended up seeing in the early 2000s when hemp kind of had the door kicked open with the farm bill all of a sudden people started realizing hey i can grow an acre of cannabis but if i can produce it without any thc i can grow 50 acres of hemp so i ended up helping a couple farms in colorado and oregon end up you know transitioning from medical cannabis growers into being hemp growers to a point that we were growing about 600 acres in uh, Oregon, Eastern Oregon, and then extracting it using ethanol, going through the whole winterization process, fractional distillation to produce distillate, and then 
in states that allowed CBD, we were actually going through the process of turning it into CBD isolate. So CBD isolate isn't necessarily necessary unless if you're trying to sell it into a market that has zero tolerance for THC. So a couple of the companies I've worked with actually were developing distribution networks, developing markets where we could produce CBD manufactured products and export them to places like uh, Asia Pacific, South America, Europe. Um, so we would actually produce CBD isolate manufactured into tinctures, topicals, pills, um, dosable products, and then exporting that CBD manufactured product to places like China, South America, Europe. Some of those countries, um, I don't want to stereotype, but some of those countries that are predominantly Catholic and very anti-cannabis allowed CBD. But when they passed their federal law, they said, hey, we're only going to allow CBD to be imported if it's 0% THC. So many of the hemp producers here in the U.S. and in North America quickly realized that, hey, if I take it all the way to a distillate, it's going to be 98%, 92 to 98% THC or CBD, but it's still going to have trace amounts of THC in it. So in... I had to pull out my college chemistry textbooks and read up on chromatography back in the 2011 through 2015 when we were developing chromatography. Um, but I wanted to ask you on that, when you're reading up on that, um, isn't there a guy back in the 30s or in 20s or something like that, Dr. Willard or Dr. Wilson, so, Dr. something like that, that did some of the early CBD and THC stuff before World War II? I, I can't remember his exact name, Dr. Yes. W something. Yeah, so um, there's a long history of cannabinoids, but they actually didn't identify the chemical structure of THC until 64. So that prior to that, they were, they were actually doing uh, extraction and distillates of the cannabinoids, um, actually dating back to the, the 1700s. One of the if, if we all know the story of have heard the stories of the philosopher's stones, yeah. um, prior to chemistry being a term, we called it alchemy. And one of those alchemical stories actually spoke of a process where we would take plant matter and mix it with Vita Vitali, AKA ethanol to produce a green solution that they called the green lion or green dragon. Uh, so we had one of my companies we started in Seattle was called Green Lion, named after a, I believe it was a 1740s reference to a Green Lion tincture that was produced out of Vita Vitali uh, ethanol. And then from that Green Lion tincture, they would send it through a distillation to turn it yellow and then a crystallization to turn it into what they call the philosopher's stones. So there's between three and 600 years of cannabis extraction experience, but many of that had to be done through occult writings. We couldn't talk about, you know, converting or producing things like isolates uh, early on because of the wrath of the church, they call us witches. But then we had a big boom in the 1800s through the early 1900s, where many 
uh, ethnobotanical plants were turned into products like tinctures. Uh, laudanum was a thing in the 1800s into the early 1900s. But with the advent of, with the outbreak of World War One, all of a sudden they wanted to be able to have, the US federal government wanted to be able to treat uh, veterans that got hurt, but didn't want to have a unregulated bonanza of medical products where people were producing all sorts of medical products, products that contained mercury and saying it was going to be good for your bones joints when it really was destroying your bone joints. Um, so the, the FDA ended up early on passing those rules that said, hey, if you're going to produce a drug, it has to go through some sort of drug trial and it has to be monomolecular. Uh, that set back the whole herbal supplement industry a, a century, 100 years. But we're now just starting to come out of that. Many of the research of cannabinoids that should have been done in the 30s, 40s, 50s didn't get done until the 80s, 60s through the 80s and actually real, really just starting up again over the last decade. So yeah, I think, I think what they had done in the 40s, was it 40s or 50s? 50s is when they identified the boiling point. I think it was 64 that... Um, that they started identifying the chemical structure. So identifying, hey, it's got this many hydrogens, this many carbons, this many oxygens. And then I believe Raphael elucidated the chemical structure in 67 or 68. Um, sorry, I'm just pulling it out of my memory. But yeah, the prior to the 70s, we knew that THC, we knew that cannabis was psychoactive, but we did not know what was causing that psychoactivity, which is one of the primary reasons why they assumed that it would was making people crazy. No, it doesn't, it doesn't contain sugar, it doesn't contain nicotine, we don't know what it is because it, it's got more carbons in it than ethanol. So let's just ban it because it must be poison. So that's obviously ignorance based on the lack of scientific understanding at the time. But over the last 50 years, we've come to better understand cannabis, its biosynthetic pathways, and we've actually been able to show that it is not only safe, but actually may be part of a quintessential uh, equilibrium system within the body. You know, I, I do not think it's a coincidence that over the last hundred years since cannabis and hemp has been banned, we've seen a explosion of neurodegenerative diseases. Because um, there used to be feral hemp being grown everywhere. It still grows wild in many states in the Midwest. And that, that feral hemp would go to feed the cows, go to feed the livestock, that and those endocannabinoids would get into the livestock, get into the cow's milk, get into the meat. And it was a way that we could essentially feed our endocannabinoid system just by allowing it to grow on our farms. And that's essentially been stripped out of our farms leading to decades of endocannabinoid deficiency within the humanity. So, um, yeah, so back in the pre-legalization era, you know, the only thing you could really use was really ethanol and mechanical separation, things like dry sift. Um, so, you know, hand charas goes back a couple thousand years in the Himalayan mountains where you're rubbing buds. Um, 
the silkscreen dry sift production in the Middle East as well as North Africa date, dates back a couple of hundred years. Um, so as, as they started bringing silk scarves back from the uh, Near East through the Silk Road to the Middle East, some of that silk would actually get left in the Middle East. And then the farmers started realizing that if they broke or trimmed or broke up their buds on over these silk screens, the silk would actually allow the glandular trichomes to fall through. So that led to what we know of as the hash production in places like Afghanistan and Lebanon. And then later that was moved to places like Morocco, um, Algeria for smuggling purposes. But up until about 50 years ago, it was primarily a mechanical separation similar to threshing of things like wheat, where we're separating the wheat or rice, where we're separating the rice kernel or the grain of grain from the bast of the plant material, removing all the plant material, and then you're left with kind of the fruit of our labor. With cannabis, it's gonna be done, um, the glandular trichromes with seeded bud, obviously glandular trichromes and seeded bud. But in places like Lebanon and Afghanistan, they would actually harvest the plants in the fall, bring them inside of their sheds or houses to dry, and then wait until the coldest part of the year. The reason why they wait till midwinter to actually start doing their sifting is because you know when you think about the glandular trichrome being a, a cap on the top of a stalk, that stalk becomes brittle as it becomes cooled. So Shredder 0911 would love to learn more about how to use some liquid nitrogen and how to best use it for dry sift safely. Um, so liquid nitrogen is one of the things that's been developed over the last couple of years. But before we get to liquid nitrogen, we can talk about the evolution. First, it was just breaking buds up over sieves. Then I think it was in the 90s, Bubble Man, Marcus, as well as other people um, like Mila started producing products like the tumblers and resonators that actually allowed us to produce dry sift by allowing that bud to be broken up over screens and things like the tumblers or those flat square screens and the trichromes essentially fall through. Well, that kind of changed when Bubble Man, a couple other guys started developing the water hash process in the 90s um, where they realized that those glandular oil containing glandular trichromes because of the waxy cuticle being denser than the water, if you were to produce, if you were to thresh those glandular trichrome plant material in a column of water, the biomass, because it still contains cellulose and air, is going to float, whereas the denser, higher density waxy cuticle in the glandular trichrome is actually going to sink. So that was the kind of advent of bubble hash. You know, I'm going to break the buds up in water. The, the glandular trichromes that contain the essential oils are going to sink to the bottom, and then we can screen it out. The, the biomass can float to the top. So we're dealing in that water hash or ice water sieving or bubble hash, whatever you want to call it, we're dealing with density um, through the mechanical sieving process to actually break the flower up 
and allow the trichromes, which are denser, to fall through those screens, collect on those screens of various sizes, and then discarding the biomass, which is less dense, floats on water, and can be separated using the larger micron screens. So over the last 20 years, bub bubble hash has been really popular. Um, over the last well, 30 years, it's been really popular. But over the last five or 10 years, we've kind of had a resurgence of solventless extraction. So because of things like you know increasing regulation around butane over the last five years, as well as things like vape gate, where people were using unapproved adulterants or additives to vape pens causing scare, many people started transitioning back to some of that traditional sieving. Um, what's awesome about liquid nitrogen is that it's going to freeze your biomass. Liquid nitrogen boils at negative 150 degrees. So the minute you take your biomass and saturate it in liquid nitrogen, that liquid nitrogen is going to freeze that material. The nitrogen is going to boil off. It's a endothermic reaction, which means that as the liquid nitrogen's boiling off, it's absorbing all the heat from the environment and it's chilling your biomass down to negative 150 degrees. Um, and generally we'll get it down to about negative 60 within our tumblers. So by introducing either carbon dioxide, which chills down to negative 60 or liquid nitrogen, which chills down to about negative 80, you can actually flash freeze your plant biomass. And when you think about this stock and the glandular trichrome on that, is that stock going to be more or less brittle when it's freezing cold? Well, it's going to be more able to move around if it's warm, but if it's frozen solid, it's going to be relatively easy for my screen to come along and just break that glandular trichrome off. So how can we utilize liquid nitrogen and how best to use it safely? Um, obviously, liquid nitrogen's heavier than air, so it is an asphyxiant like carbon dioxide. If you're going to be using carbon dioxide or liquid nitrogen to sift, you need to do it in a ventilated room and have air being extracted from the room from below four feet, i.e. floor level ventilation. So what I would recommend if you're gonna get into carbon dioxide or liquid nitrogen sifting is first get, get ventilation in your room. That ventilation is going to extract the air. If you do not have that ventilation in your room, you can kill yourself. So if you're not gonna do it safely, don't do it at all. Once you have the ventilation, what I would start doing is looking at, okay, what are the ways that I can introduce this biomass or this nitrogen or carbon dioxide into my biomass to help flash freeze it? I've seen that done a couple of ways. Um, there are two equipment manufacturers, Green Bros and the uh, Resonator company that actually have ports on the size of their dry sift tumblers where you can actually plumb either carbon dioxide or liquid nitrogen to actually inject carbon dioxide or liquid nitrogen into the biomass while it's tumbling. That's going to help freeze that biomass while it's in the tumbler. Ideally, your biomass is very dry before you put it into that tumbler so that no water will essentially get extracted. Um, and then after it's basically, you're breaking those glandular trichromes off in your carbon dioxide or liquid nitrogen or water solution. And it's then going to travel through that solution 
into your bubble bags or into your sieves and then get collected and filtered off. Um, personally, I prefer carbon dioxide because it's easier to extract out of the air than liquid nitrogen. Um, you can buy carbon dioxide generators. You can also buy nitrogen generators. Um, and that nitrogen generator is gonna pull that nitrogen out of the air using nothing but electricity and essentially using a giant compressor to compress it into first a gas and then a liquid. Um, sorry, I just saw something pop up here. What was the next one? Uh, Yeah, so once you have your, once you've passed your cannabinoids or your glandular trichromes into your solution, send it through the, the sieving, then you can actually collect those glandular trichromes on a sieve and essentially remove that material from your liquid nitrogen or dry ice. And because liquid nitrogen boils at negative 150 degrees, you don't have to purge it. Because carbon dioxide boils at negative 60 degrees, you don't have to purge it. So generally what we will do in, if we're going to be doing liquid nitrogen or dry sifting with carbon dioxide is, you know, once we get the material out of the machine, we still want to let it off gas any of that residual uh, nitrogen or carbon dioxide, but we'll, and we'll allow it to off gas inside of a tray, inside of a sealed food rack in a room that still has its ventilation going. So I think that the comment was asking about water-soluble cannabinoids. So the best way to explain water-soluble cannabinoids in a way that many of the listeners are going to understand is the same way that we explain trichromes and bubble ash. So once I have an isolate, THC, the cannabinoids are generally not water-soluble, they're fat-soluble. But if I put that cannabinoid in an envelope, have the inside of that envelope be able to interact with cannabinoids, but the outside of that envelope is water soluble, I can essentially make a trichrome or a, what's called a missio or a liposome, essentially a micro cell that's water soluble, a micro bubble that's water soluble on the inside of that bubble contains our, the essential oils, the cannabinoids that we are des desiring. And on the outside, you have essentially a water soluble matrix. That's done a couple of different ways. So there's what's called missile based uh, nano cannabinoids, which basically is a singular single cell wall. You have essentially one layer of lipids that have a nonpolar tail and a polar phospholipid head. And that phospholipid head is going to create that wall around your, your droplets of oil. And the smaller you can get that droplet of oil and, the, and thus the uh, more surface area of the head, the more that you can actually make that water soluble. There's a couple other ways of doing it. What's one that's called liposomal, where you're actually doing multiple layers around the outside of that droplet, or chelation, which is primarily done in the uh, nutrient industry. So everyone knows, has heard about chelated nutrients. What you're essentially doing is taking a nutrient that doesn't like to stay suspended in water. You're making it 
become more soluble in water by locking it into a salt complex. And that can be done with cannabinoids as well, although I'm unfortunately restricted by NDA to be able to talk about it. So there's actually seven different ways of making cannabinoids water soluble. The most common ones are a miscel based or liposomal based, although there's going to be a ton of innovation as we actually have funding to be able to bring that to market. Um, encapsulated, yeah, grow, grow, grows way encapsulated liposomes. That's pro and so in my, in my opinion, miscel-based water-soluble drinks are probably going to be the most popular for a recreational market. Liposomal-based is probably going to be better for the medical market because you know a, a chemist like me can actually embed proteins on the outside of those liposomes that deliver that droplet to a specific organ. So if I'm trying to treat a disease, say a liver disease, I can embed proteins on the outside of that that says, hey, unzip this package when it interacts with a liver enzyme or liver protein synthase. Um, and then that cannabinoid is only going to be released from that liposome when it gets to that specific organ. And the FDA requires you to be able to prove you're delivering your monomolecular isolate to a specific organ group if you're going to get FDA approved. So I think liposomal cannabinoids are going to probably be the more pharmaceutical route. Missio based will probably be the cheapest and easiest, thus the recreational route. And for long shelf stability, you'll probably look at things like chelated. Um, but there's a bunch of different ways we could easily do that. Um, and yes, Aldridge, generally the missio base are gonna have a phospholipid head is the best because you know, just like in the cell, in the human body, we generally have our cells have phospholipid heads. Having those phospholipid heads actually makes it very bioavailable. Your body doesn't start to see detect it and react to it nearly as well. So it becomes more bioavailable, faster uptake and, and ends up being having a better efficacy to the consumer. Um, there's other things that have been used like soaps, but those end up not having the best shelf stability. Um, I was at but, a, the other day, they had something called HTEP, HPE, I don't know if I remember what it was, but um, do you want to touch on that and what, what that is for a minute? Talking THCP? Uh, no, not THCP. It was like high terpene something extract. Oh, HTSFCE. So, yeah. So, we were talking earlier about going through the extraction process. You know, the first thing that everybody was really hot and bothered trying to produce was isolated monomolecular THC. Um, first, it was shatter, right? And then it was distillate. Everyone had to have distillate. And then it became isolate because of primarily the CBD craze. What people realized when we started producing vape pens out of distillate and CBD isolate was that I didn't, you don't get as high off of pure THC as you do off of the terpenes in conjunction with the cannabinoids. The reason for this is a process that Ethan Russo has written extensively about. Uh, Dr. Russo is a former neurosurgeon for GW Pharmaceutical. Um, it's called the entourage effect. So just consuming THC is going to affect your THC receptors. But by adding those terpenes, you actually can significantly increase the efficacy of those cannabinoids. 
So, and there's synergistic side effects that create a cascading effect within your body when you have those terpenes. So obviously in the early days of medical and recreational, everyone wanted to produce that 100% THC. Well, we started realizing that, hey, when I'm making a 95% THC vape pen, it doesn't get me as high as this 75% vape pen that's got its terps still in it. So we, what we started doing first, first with CO2, but then later with butane was actually trying to do what's called fractional extraction or uh, extraction into uh, using carbon dioxide to essentially do a fractional distillation. The first thing that we extract are the terpenes. So HTSFE, high terpene superfluid extract. And then essentially you can extract the terpenes from your cannabinoid biomass and then do a secondary extraction called HCSFE. So high cannabinoid superfluid extract. And essentially what you can do is extract your terpenes first, then your cannabinoids. If you wanted, you could take your cannabinoids, reintroduce your terpenes and have a high terpene crude extract. But what many of the vape pen producers were doing, were they were realizing that, hey, this high cannabinoid fraction, when I winterize it and then boil off the ethanol, I'm going to lose all the terpenes that boil off below ethanol's boiling point. So it's not going to have those monoterpenes that give it its really light, delicate floral layer. But if I separate the terpenes first and take the cannabinoid fractions and send a cannabinoid fraction that has its waxes, has the lipids, has the carotenoids that give it its color, send that through winterization, distillation in the case of vape pens, then I can essentially remove all the impurities on this later fraction, reintroduce this terpene fraction, and now I have a distillate with this strain-specific uh, terpenes in it that taste much closer to the cannabis flower tastes than if I were to add botanical terpenes to that distillate. So the, the first couple of groups that were doing that, I think were based out of Washington, California, and Oregon. Um, but it became a lot more popular as the distillate game, distillate vape pens started flooding the market. And then once I could have distillate vape pens in every store and the, those markets, then all of a sudden it was like, hey, okay, we got, we got the moonshine, but most people don't drink moonshine, they drink wine. So let's go ahead and not have a you know 95% THC. Let's come out with a 50 or 60 or 70% THC that's got 10 to 30% terpenes in it um, and produce something a vape pen that actually tastes like the flower. So you know what they would do is once we had the kind of isolate of the cannabinoids fraction, then it 2015 through 2020, then it was like, okay, we have we know how to produce monomolecular isolates. How can we build on that monomolecular isolates by taking advantage of the entourage effect of those terpenes? And we're going to start to see that um, in the federally regulated markets, as well as many of the new markets. When I go to consulting trips or business trips out to the East Coast, many of those states that are one or two years into legalization, they primarily have distillate on the market. Even here in Canada, there's, we're, 
federal legalization went into effect 2019. You could have extracts in 2020. So I think it's now 2022 that you, you now have live resin vape pens. Um, and then, yeah, there's only two or three live resin vape pens in the BC market. I don't, I don't think that anybody's producing high terpene SFE vape pens yet. There, there is one group, two groups working on rosin vape pens. Um, so as the industry evolves, all of a sudden everyone realized, hey, I can't just sell this, you know, distillate. I got, if I'm going to sell this distillate, it's going to be like the malt liquor industry. It's going to be kind of our sub lower grade economy product. But if I'm if I want to be able to have a 20, a 40, and a $60 product portfolio, you have to be able to have something cheap for the gas station, something decent for the consumers, as well as a premium product for the connoisseurs. What I in the case of vape pens, you got distillate, you got high terpene extracts, so generally solvent extracted, and then you got solventless vape pens, which are the mythical unicorn in many of the developed markets. Um, same with dabables, right? Early days, it was just a kind of a low terpene content wax or shatter. And then all of a sudden we could kind of have that intermediate, what's called live resin, where we freeze the material before it's dried, extract it, maintain that monoterpene floral bouquet because we're doing our extraction cold and not drying it. And then getting that in the market with almost two to three times as much terpenes as the early days of shatter. Uh, more recently in Canada, it, it took almost two years in Canada to have the first live rosins and live resins in the market. Now, what I'm seeing when I talk to retail stores is that, hey, every time I get a high quality product, even though it costs twice as much as the discount product, it sells out. So as consumers become more educated, they, they tend to buy the best quality product that their budget allows. Now we're going into a, a lot of economists are thinking we're going into a recession. So you'll probably see more consumer trends go towards a lower cost product. But as we ebb and flow in and out of recessions and economic booms, we always want to try and maintain like, hey, here's our cheap stuff. Here's, here's our, um, yeah, cheap, cheap product. And then here's our high-end rosin. That way we can have our two buck truck our, our micro beers, as well as our kind of premium champagnes. Um, so. Awesome. Um, let me see here. We've actually gone through a bunch of the things I was going to ask you about. Um, I did have a question about, so there is an a, a absolutely ludicrous, it's like this, the number of CBD licenses kind of went off a cliff this year. Um, there's like, I think a little over 2000 licenses now or something around 2000 where it used to be almost 70. Um, do you think the price of CBD flour is going to go up this year with the you know huge reduction in production, or is it scaling to where it's going to be about the same? Um, how do I put this delicately? I th I think we're more likely to see THC flour commodification, so that you I, there will always you know. There will always be low quality biomass. There will always be higher quality biomass. There will always be people trying to buy CBD hemp for $20 a pound. 
there and there will be consumers willing to pay over a thousand dollars a pound, whether it's TAC or CBD. Um, so here in Canada, we don't actually have a lot of CBD being cultivated because there's a pedigreed seed program. So the only people allowed to cultivate CBD here in Canada are the LPs. So Canada is actually inverse to the U.S. Um, so I'll, I'll talk about the U.S. real quick, and then I'll kind of talk about Canada, and then we'll come back to both. So, yeah, when I first started extracting CBD, there weren't a lot of people doing it. Um, I think I was one of the first five groups in Colorado that were isolating dry sift and turning it into distillate. When Oregon passed, we had a ton of people start building labs in Oregon because they thought it was a way to get out of the recreational industry that was already flooded in Oregon. Um, and I wanna say in 2014, Oregon had ounces of cannabis for $40 an ounce. And many of these recreational farmers couldn't produce cannabis and sell it at a profit. So they started transitioning out of the, the recreational space and cutting their losses and realizing, hey, I'm not really making a lot of money growing THC, but I can grow 100 acres of CBD and ship it across the US. And that's exactly what they did. They got in the CBD space, they started producing it. If they were smart, they got a, a sales license from their state, built business connections with you know, salespeople throughout the US, produced a federally compliant CBD isolate or manufactured product, and then built the network to start exporting that across the US or they were even smarter exporting it to other countries with limited imports. Um, as that became popular in the 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018 time, and then with the passage of the farm bill, all of a sudden the number of hemp producers exploded. That leaded to commodification within the price. Many more farmers planted hemp than there were, was processing capacity. I'd love to process all the hemp for all the farmers. Unfortunately, I cannot raise money fast enough to build labs that can meet the demands for the farmers. And for that matter, I cannot build labs fast enough to keep up with the demand of the countries trying to import US CBD monomolecular isolates. So there's still, even though there's a glut of CBD in the US, there is a massive global shortage of CBD available. The problem is, is many of those US companies haven't gone through the process to learn, learn or haven't gone through the permitting process to be able to export CBD or CBD manufactured products to places like South America, Europe, or Asia. Um, there's a few groups that are prim primarily ones that are a lot better funded, have lawyers sitting on their boards, that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, the we saw a green rush of people thinking that they were going to make all their money off the CBD. But the reality is, is that CBD and THC are an agricultural commodity, just like hops, just like tobacco. And I don't want to scare everybody, but by the time that you're dealing with the publicly traded companies that I'm competing against, they can, they can lose $20 million a season without even batting an eye or firing an executive. So I think it's far wiser to focus on producing a champagne that you can sell as a premium product and is going to maintain its price than trying to produce a two buck chuck that's going to have to compete on the global market against the commodification of the prices. So 
Well, I've built labs that are doing both and consulting groups that are doing both. What I've seen is that the companies that are producing a premium product, growing organic flour, producing quality extracts that have high terpene contents, they're able to sell their products and they can't keep it in stock. The people that are trying to go for maximum production, minimizing the cost, put it out the door, they end up having a glut of product in their inventory and end up having to sell it at an ever-increasing loss. Um, sorry, just getting, no getting texted by the wifey. got to respond. Um, <laughs> so, so, yeah, I think... There's a global shortage of CBD, but there's a glut within the US. That glut within the US led to the price commodification. The price crashed dramatically. I remember when we were selling kilos of CBD isolate for 40 grand, and then it went down to 20. I think it's what, three, 400 bucks a kilo on the wholesale if you're buying it in bulk, a couple grand, under a grand if you're buying uh, single kilos. But if you're selling a GMP, EU GMP accredited kilo of isolate, I know people that are still getting two to $5,000 a kilo while their competitors selling the exact same potency, exact same CBD isolate that comes from a non GMP accredited facility are selling it at a 10th as much. The same is true here in Canada. Um, Canada, we don't have the massive glut of CBD hemp because the hemp farmers are primarily growing it for seed some hemp growers are growing it for fiber and a very small percentage of farmers are growing CBD for uh, CBD hemp for CBD extraction. So we don't really have the glut of CBD here in Canada, but we got federal recreational cannabis. And if I, when I look at the federal production numbers, as opposed to the amount of cannabis sold over the last year, I can say that six times as much cannabis has been produced in Canada over the last year as has been sold. What's that mean? We could, the entire country of Canada could stop growing weed and we have enough weed to get through the next recession because there's so much of it grown. Now I'll be honest as somebody who had to go look and source that material for some of the larger labs not everything's as dank as all the customers want. In fact, the majority of the cannabis being produced out of these newly built facilities takes time to dial your facility in. So the first couple of crops are going to be subpar product. And then as you, know, as you run a couple of cycles, you get your grow room dialed in, you get your nutrients dialed in, you get your environmental dialed in, you get your genetics dialed in, you start to produce a better quality product. But there was there has been a massive glut of THC cannabis here in Canada. This has not been helped by the provincial distribution boards. So here in Canada, there's actually a provincial federal monopoly on distribution. Um, in many of the provinces, with a few exceptions, I have to sell everything that I produce to a province who then sells it to the retail stores which means I can't build a rapport with the retail short store right down the street and say, Hey bro, I just got this new lot. It's just tested. I'm ready to package it. You're going to be the only shop carrying it exclusive drop. Can't do that. 
I literally have to go convince the entire government of or the provincial distribution board say, hey, if you carry this at your 400 government shops and the other a couple hundred more gov non-government privately owned shops, it's going to sell well. There's a small handful of decision, decision makers on what becomes available in the Canadian market. And because of that, you have you know, fairly large producers getting products into market, but for the what what are here in Canada are called the micro producers, it has become extremely difficult to be able to supply to market. And if, for example, I get an order from a big province, if that order, if that product sells out because I just had to sell to an entire province instead of a single store, and I cannot immediately restock that product, what's that provincial distribution board going to do? They're going to pull my product from the shelves. So if you, so the game here in Canada somewhat favors the big publicly traded companies that then essentially flood the market with lower quality product. And it becomes a lot harder for the traditional growers that produce the fire. There's some of the best cannabis in the world I've had has been here in Canada, but it's harder for them to bring that product to market because there are monopolistic uh, distribution gates where I should be able to go to the 50 retail stores in Vancouver, find 20 of them that actually have the same values as I do, get them to carry my product. And then, you know, on the, on the cheaper end products, we'll sell them to the cheaper stores we'll, on the higher end products. We'll sell them to the high end stores, but you don't having that provincial monopoly has made it made a massive impediment for many of the small producers to come to market. That's led to an oversupply within the Canadian market. The Canadian cannabis prices have fallen significantly from where they were even just a year ago. Um, I want to say that Canadian Canadian growers in the micro space were getting paid up to $4 a gram. I've heard as low, I've heard numbers ranging as low as eight cents a gram all the way up to about 40 cents a gram on product that they should be getting between a dollar and three fifty four per gram. Um, and if they didn't have that monopolistic distribution, those farmers probably would be getting paid two to three times as much. So it's really tough here in Canada, but what we've actually seen is that that provincial monopoly as well as the overproduction has led to a severe commodification within the industry. Um, and as a consumer, that's kind of a good thing. Like back in the day of medical and even black market, I couldn't buy hash for under 20 bucks a gram. I can tell you right now, there are producers in the Canadian market that are selling two grams of hash for under 20 bucks. Um, generally, I'm spending in that 40 to, I'm still spending in that 40 to $60 range because that's what my budget allows. But I'm still able to get a solventless extract here in Canada for 40 to $60, whereas in the medical or in the black market, it may have costed me 50 to $100. So now we have weed that's cheaper than the black market. It's arguably better because it's now in, it's tested and taxed, um, but it's continually improving because the smaller companies that were able to produce the quality but didn't have the financial backing to push it into the market by hiring 50 people to fill out all the paperwork, 
those smaller companies, it takes longer to get into market, but since they're producing a better quality product, they're able to produce product that ends up having higher customer retention. So more people, if I have something that's, you know, a five-star hash as opposed to a three-star hash, I'm going to smoke that three-star hash if I'm broke and can't pay my bills. But if I'm doing good, if my companies are doing good, I'm going to buy that premium product because I'm trying to brag to the cute girls that I'm smoking with. So, yeah, I've seen seen 10 to $40 grams an RSO in Maine, says Jim Owen. I think that, you know, we're going to see in our lifetime, Steve, you and I are about the same age. I think you're going to be able to see Packs of pre-rolls cheaper than cigarettes. I think you're going to see vape pens cheaper than cigarettes in our lifetime. Um, because to be honest, they, I'd rather sell a THC vape pen for 10 bucks a unit than have people buying a pack of cigarettes for 10 bucks a pack. Um, it's, it's arguably healthier. You know, we still need to do a lot of the research on that, but I would, I would say that it's healthier, less, less harmful carcinogens. Um, but the, so we had a, I had another question for you as far as decarb. Now, um, I managed uh, well, back when I used to live in Philly, we used to decarb in Mason jars to kind of keep from stinking up the apartment complex. And then we realized we were getting better potency, you see uh, decarbing in a sealed container, um, and, and kind of ran with that. And then. Um, I know a lot of people are kind of moving that direction with either doing it in a, a, a kind of like a souve in a backpack bag or doing it, uh, you know, in a, a sealed basin jar in a pressure cooker. Um, what are your thoughts on the different uh, decarb methods and what do you like as far as, you know, stuff that people might be able to use if they're trying to help, you know, someone that they know uh, make some medicine? So you learn to protect the turps, eh? Yeah, this yeah, is back so- the Back in the hood, you know, back there growing up in Philly, like if you if you cook in your a couple pounds heat, of bro. weed, like the whole block knows that you're cooking off a couple pounds of weed, right? Like it's just loud. So yeah, you gotta, so you so what we're talking about <laughs> is a process called reflux in the distillation game. So by sealing that jar, you're not allowing oxygen into it you're reducing the amount of oxygen available to actually oxidize the terpenes, allowing the terpenes to volatilize. Thus, when the terpenes boil, they essentially boil, condense on the lid, reliquify, fall back in. There's gonna be a little bit of thermal degradation, but you're not gonna lose those terpenes like you would if you had an open vessel. So when you're looking at entourage, I love being able to decarboxylate my broad spectrum cannabis extracts in a sealed vessel. Generally, it's a mason jar. Um, I've seen people use the sous vides because there's been cases where the mason jar heated. You get enough thermal expansion that will cause the mason jar to break. So that's putting it in a sous vide bag, it just kind of adds as a protective layer. Um, But yeah, my... on a quick note, I do have uh, guide videos on, sorry about the cat and the dog playing. Um, I do have guide videos on both of those techs on my YouTube channel. Um, they're actually two of my top 10 most used videos per week. So um, if anyone nice. is, is wanting to learn more about that, there are uh, how-tos on that. Nice. 
Yeah, and I, and to be honest, that's probably one of the better ways of doing it is you know seal, sealed vessel decarboxylation for terpene retention. Unless if you're trying to produce a edible that doesn't taste like weed, uh, you know if if you have a customer, a family member that doesn't really like the taste of weed, then you may want to try and oxidize and boil those off or turn it into a distillate. But for the majority of consumers that are okay with the taste of weed, being able to preserve those terpenes are going to make your product more efficacious just from the entourage effect. I've also found that apple sugar, for whatever reason, seems to do a pretty good job of neutralizing that kind of like heavier, resiny, ashier kind of flavor to the, 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 the stuff. So if you're trying to go at home, that's something you can get at any grocery store. Um, it definitely helps. Um, but you do need to have a good emulsifier. Spending a couple extra bucks on a sonicator emulsifier will make a huge difference in the, in the quality of what you're making. Yeah, for you sure. Touch on that on emulsifiers for a minute or the different equipment. Is that a little? Oh, uh, yeah. So, what should I talk about there? So, yeah, once we have the cannabis into our uh, extracted state, many of the many of the companies are looking at either producing it into a edible or a formulated product. Um. In general, if you're just turning it into an edible, you can infuse it into either a sugar or a fat, and then take that sugar or fat and mix it into your edible. So, you know, things like chocolate, you can put it into the butter. Many of the baked goods, you can just infuse it into the sugar. My wife like loves making maple candy. So taking infusing maple syrup, slowly boiling off the water and essentially turning it into an infused fudge. Um, this is your decarb decarboxylation step. Yeah. So the what we have going on here is basically the biomass is getting put into bags, and then we're essentially boiling the biomass in that bag. Because the water is boiling, it's sitting at 100 centigrade, which is roughly 212 Fahrenheit. So the decarboxylation is going to start at about 135 Fahrenheit. So in a bag like this, Steve, what are you doing between three and six hours uh, for the decarboxylate? Like this is really yeah. So in this video, I so think we did two and a half. Your, um, but yeah, okay. I, I, yeah, I guess so, it went a little longer, but uh, but we did about two and a half hours uh, in that. And you can also buy a souve and throw them in like a beer cooler or whatever, and do it the same way at home if you're trying to find like a lower tech method. Yeah, great for cooking steaks too. Totally. <laughs> um, yeah, the other thing that I would just do is um, honestly put it, put the flour in a jar, and put it in, put it in an oven like you're doing right here, actually. Uh, so you're just kind of pre pre baking it, and then you're actually you're able to decarb your material in its floral form. Uh, so, generally speaking, with decarboxylization that there's going to be three factors that go into it the amount of oxygen that's present the amount of heat and the amount of uv light so with this we're primarily using heat but there are other ways you can decarboxylate at lower temperatures without having the thermal degradation just by essentially what's called dispersing oxygen through those uh, canisters then you can use less heat but you'll end up getting more oxidization of the terpenes um, what I like to do too is uh, 
I'll take those. And if I'm going to do this for butter or oil infusion for someone I'm trying to help, um, especially if I have a bunch of leftover rosin pucks uh, from making hash rosin, I love to use that stuff for making this stuff, especially if I'm going to give it out to people that are really hurting or need it for cancer stuff or whatever else that is really heavy kind of treatments. I'll take this, put it all in a mason jar, decarb it, um, and then um, take that and fill it maybe 40 or 50% of the way in the jars rather than as much as we did in the video. Sorry about the cat in the background. Um, he wants to get out. Uh, I'll let him out in a second. Anyways, um, and then so what we'll do is we'll fill them about 40, 50% of the way, and then we'll, we'll decarb it, and then we'll take those out, put them in the fridge, and then we'll put uh, take those, open them after about two or three hours cooling down, pour in our hot melted butter or oil into there and then put those back into a pressure cooker and then and cook them that way and that's been really good for as far as a, like a home tech kind of method yeah totally totally so um yeah what i what i actually like doing for my home edibles is generally you know generally i'm making hash at home regardless um so what i'll do is i'll make i'll make my plant material either a dry sift or bubble hash generally a dry sift with my home take the biomass that's already been sifted and I'll, I generally like to do an oil extraction with it. So take, take the plant matter that's been sifted. I know that I've removed greater than 50% of the cannabinoids into the sift, but there's still going to be some residual cannabinoids left in that biomass. I'll take that biomass, put it into a jar, put that jar into an oven, um, anywhere from an hour to three hours, depending on how decarbed I want it to be, how much THCA versus THC. And then I'll actually fill that jar with oil um, or alcohol, but my wife likes to cook. So I generally use hemp seed oil. Um, and then we will do an oil extraction, um, let it sit in generally cool, dark place for as long as possible. If we're doing a THCA extraction or if I'm doing a THC extraction, I'll take the biomass that's been partially decarbed, fill it with oil, put it in a sous vide, let the sous vide run heated that heated oil is going to extract the cannabinoids a little bit faster than if you're just letting it room temp but you are going to get progressive decarboxylization um, i'm also a huge fan of thca um, so my wife and i both when it's summer months and we're cultivating we're actually harvesting those leaves couple times a week we're, we go through and our, we prune all our leaves make it into a salad make it into a smoothie or juice it and you can actually get some of those polyphenols terpenes and cannabinoids extracted into your juice into that dark green juice that comes out it looks like wheatgrass shots now the nice part is is that it's thca dominant it, it hasn't been heated so until it actually gets absorbed passes through your liver and metabolized into 11-hydroxy-THC, it's THCA is significantly less intoxicating than THC, but it has wonderful energizing effect. So, you know, as somebody who works in a chemistry lab, when I'm dealing with relatively dangerous um, chemicals in day in and day out, I generally try and avoid being stoned at work, but I will consume CBD or THCA in order to prevent my uh, medical issues. And what I found is that by consuming THCA and CBD, I can get all of that medical efficacy um, without actually having 
the delayed reaction times and basically intoxication that's caused by the THC. Um, Dactic mods, yes, acids will cause decarboxylization. Um, stomach acids do have chemical interaction with the cannabinoids. But what you're really thinking about is that within your liver, there's a, a couple of enzymes that'll convert the THC into a molecule called 11-hydroxy-THC. Um, so 11-hydroxy-THC is a form of THC that's essentially been metabolized within your body. And antidotal reports actually are showing that 11-hydroxy-THC to be a little bit more psychedelic, where it actually is increasing uh, visual acuity, color sensitivity, color saturation, um, whereas THC and THCA are generally viewed as more of the kind of stony effects. So I like THC because it primarily affects my peripheral nervous system. THC affects my central nervous system. Um, and it, I get slower thoughts. 11-hydroxy-THC is nice because it, as it converts, after I eat an edible, as it converts into 11-hydroxy-THC, I get the benefits of the THC um, in the peripheral nervous system, but I don't get the slowed down uh, mental processes that oftentimes happen. And yes, it is a form of isomerization. Um, and Chad, you're spot on. The magic happens in the liver. Uh, does anyone know if Delta-8 turns into 11-hydroxy-THC? Yes, it does. Um, Delta-8, Delta-9, all can be converted into 11-hydroxy-THC. Um, there's some other side reactions that I won't go into, but next time we have Dr. Mark, I'll have him come, we can have him on and explain. But yeah, you can, you can produce uh you 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 can produce not only 11 hydroxy thc but uh delta 6 delta 9 and delta 8 thc through isomerization so i have something uh i wanted to share with you hold on i'm switching internets here so again there we go hopefully my internet's a little more stable now um so this was CBD crystals grown in grapeseed oil with sonicated CBD rosin. Oh, nice. Nice. Uh, so, yeah, it's just super saturated the oil. Yep. Super hyper saturated the, the um, grapeseed oil with uh, CBD rosin and then sonicated it until. It yeah. Was. So, gra grapeseed oil generally has a lower molecular weight. That's why it likes to stay room temperature. Um, that's really pretty crystallization. The, yeah, so it's the cleanest uh, as far as uh, non, um, I guess, something that you can do rosin to crystal. It's the yeah. cleanest method I've found so far and something that's kind of pure and organic and something kind of neat and different I wanted to kind of share. That's a beautiful lattice structure. Yeah, I'm going to pull up some more pictures. Yeah, so ge generally speaking, guys, uh, listeners, the smaller the crystalline lattice, the harder it is to get what's called impurities included into those crystals. 
So as, as I'm growing a diamond, as I get that diamond bigger and bigger and bigger, it's easier to get inclusions in that diamond of potential impurities. By having a larger molecular weight oil that's closer to the molecular weight of THC, as you supersaturate it, you can produce that what's called pinnately uh, structured crystalline structure. So it produces that much more lacy crystalline structure. Did you, did you screen that out? Oh, nice. Yeah. So you can see that here it's kind of growing along a relatively long uh, unilateral crystalline structure. Whereas if you're doing, if you were to do that same thing in an alkene, as the alkene boil, it's going to pack it in much more of a faceted um, looking more like a diamond. So did that, when, did you filter that out of the oil oh, yeah. later? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we cleaned it and it came out really nice. Did it come out like a, uh, uh, what's really that called? Like yeah, super clear, right? Glassy? Yeah, yeah really glassy. Yeah. Like the glassy is, here, here's a, here's a different batch and you can kind of see how the, um, how it drops out with the heavier oils at the bottom. Yeah, totally. And crystals on top. Before That's we awesome. Yeah, it's just kind of a different tech. I was trying to kind of figure out something that you could take from CBD rosin to do kind of a cleaner separation um, and still kind of keep it, you know, relatively you know, organic certified inputs. That's cool. Um... Just a weird hippie tech, not, I don't know, I have no idea how useful it is, but it's kind of cool. Yeah, so I, I see a comment on YouTube chat, looking for a pathway from Delta 8 to CBN if, if possible. It is possible, there's a couple different ways. Um, so just reading your comments, e-juice all the time. So it, look, it sounds like this user, sick Mods is, producing CBD, that CBD is then being put into a vape pen. CBD likes to crystallize, form crystalline structures, CBDA less so. So what many of these CBD producers are doing is producing it into a CBD distillate, then recrystallizing that distillate into an isolate, that way it's zero THC. Problem is, is once it's CBD, it really likes to form that crystalline structure. And when you put it into a vape pen with terpenes, as you vaporize the terpenes out of the vape pen, the CBD, the terpenes will actually evaporate before the, the CBD will. So your terpene content of the vape pen decreases at a faster rate than the cannabinoids, causing that supersaturation and crystallization. Um, there are a couple ways of making it less likely to form a crystalline lattice. But for your question, can Delta-8 or Delta-9 or CBD be converted into CBN? There's a couple ways. There's an enzymatic way, a chemical way, a chemical process using iodine, as well as what I'll talk about for being the easiest method is heat. So energetically speaking, when I talk about thermally degrading cannabinoids, THC is relative, THCA is relatively easy to convert into THC using heat. It's a lot harder to convert THC back into THCA. Um, the same thing is true with converting the neutral cannabinoids, CBD or THC, into CBN. So in the presence of light, in the presence of oxygen, 
in the presence of UV light, UVC, THC will slowly degrade into CBN. So if you're in a market and that market specifically desires a more narcotic sedating cannabis vape pen, what you can actually do is convert your THC or CBD distillate into CBN using heat. Um, probably the easiest way of doing it is using heat. You do lose a lot of the THC or CBD in the process of thermal degradation, but there's been a couple groups I've worked with that are basically converting THC, taking, taking CBD and THC from hemp, obviously getting CBD to a point of an isolate. What do we do with all the THC that's extracted from the CBD? Can't sell it as THC. But if we convert that CBD into CBN, now I have CBN that's derived from hemp. Or as kind of mentioned in one, a different comment, convert that THC into Delta-8 THC. That's technically Delta-8 THC, depending on how much you've paid your lawyers, may not be federally regulated and may be a loophole that you want to exploit. I was just going to say, um, isn't THC still technically allowed for edibles as long as it's no more than 0.3% of the weight of the volume of the whole product? So as long as 0.3% or less of the total weight of the brownie or cookie or whatever. Uh, I know there's yeah, quite so a... If you, uh, so if you got a 100 gram brownie, you could have 2.9 grams of THC distillate in it. 2900 that's, that's a massive that's a massive loophole that to be honest i don't want to pay the lawyers to represent me on if that becomes a federal case so yes there and in washington state they've actually passed a law called chaba the cannabis health and beauty aids law so if you're a regulated producer in washington state you can actually take cbd and thc make them into topicals or body care products, cannabis health and beauty aids. And as long as the lotion contains less than 0.3% THC, you can sell that THC and CBD lotion at a grocery store. Um, so, you know, that's something I trying to stay on the, trying to stay on this side of the bars. Um, I, oh, yeah. I generally, it's Generally, certainly a market for sure. I just wanted to, as it's yeah. that how is it is currently being defended. And there was recently a court case that it's kind of, and oh. similar to Delta Eight. You know, many companies have started producing and distributing Delta Eight THC because it is a derivative of industrial hemp, and their lawyer, the lawyers that they've paid, have correctly told them that if it's derived from CBD, if it's derived from hemp, and if it as long as it is hemp derived, it is likely fine. They're probably correct. There is a potential for the DEA using what's called the Analog Drug Act to charge every Delta-8 producer with THC manufacturing. The reason why I don't expect that to happen is because what's called the, uh, they don't wanna let the cat out of the bag, right? So there was a, there was here well, in Canada. That, down that road, THCO has a much bigger precedence. If they're going to crack down on something, that's what they're going to crack down first because there's already federal cases that have been prosecuted on that particular extract going back at least 20 years. 
Yeah. Versus the, but, all the other all the other derivatives do not have federal cases going back 20 years. That one does. And that's the yeah. reason I always warn people don't do not touch that one if you're getting into commercial stuff. Well, and it's it's extraction as well as manufacturing to produce acetate, right? Well, yeah, so, I was just gonna say some of the precursors you need are, are uh, not heavily regulated to come by and highly regulated. Yeah. So you know, even though it's something that you're you could certainly pay a lawyer to argue and would make a great legal case that could potentially change the law on a federal level. It's something that many people don't aren't, are willing to kind of try try to thread that needle. And as your company grows larger, you're going to want to take less of those risks, right? Um, so I try and, especially with the publicly traded companies I work with, we try and thread the needle knowing that we're staying well within the law, the guidelines however for a small company looking to start up that wants to become a potential acquisition target those are those loopholes that you want to exploit develop that brand awareness develop that product line get it into market pray hope and advocate your way so that you don't get charged educate the regulators educate the legislators so that they can pass laws that bring you into the legal industry so that we don't have to worry about going to federal case. Now, here in Canada, Canada's whole medical and recreational program were built on federal cases. So they, here in Canada, there's actually a constitutional right to be able to consume medicine for humans. It's essentially been determined to be a constitutional right. So back in I think the early 90s, um, there was actually a case where a medical, terminally ill medical patient got arrested for consuming cannabis. And I, th I believe it was called the Allard case. Allard went to it was decided in 2004 because that was the first time I went to Montreal. It was the summer legalization when they ruled on all that stuff. Yeah, Unless totally. It's different than what you're talking about. Nope, you're, you're, you're spot on. So what, what ended up happening was they, they tried to arrest this guy Allard, John Connery, the lawyer representative of him, and basically said, hey, A, he's a terminal patient. B, he's deriving medical benefit from consuming this herb. So even though you have passed a law to ban cannabis, by banning cannabis, you've infringed upon his constitutionally afforded rights by not allowing him access to a plant-derived medicine. So even though there weren't laws in place, it effect effectively de facto legalized medical cannabis because the federal government lost that court case. A couple of years later, they ended up passing the regulations to start regulating medical. And then later on, after the cat got out of the bag, they realized, hey, we've got to regulate this and we can't just regulate it on a caregiver status or a home grower status. We got to start regulating companies. And that opened up the door to legalization. Same thing has happened with other ethnobotanical plants and drugs, psychedelic drugs. Um, in the last two years, there was a court case where somebody was using, I believe, mushrooms. Um, but now tied into the court case has been mushrooms, uh, I believe, coca, uh, cactus, psychedelic cacti, all ethnobotanical plants. 
and basically these church, these Native American churches said, hey, you can't ban this because it's a constitutional infringement upon my religious rights to be able to consume these ethnobotanical plants. Here in Vancouver, BC and throughout Canada, uh, but primarily primarily here in BC is what I've seen. I there are now mushroom dispensaries. There are cafes you can go into and buy psychedelic cactus or co uh, coca bushes, um, coca leaf bushes. Now you can't buy extracted cocaine. You can't buy extracted psilocybin. You can't buy extracted heroin. But according to that court case. It became illegal for the U.S. for the Canadian government to prohibit the plants that produce those ethnobotanical plants. It only become it after that court case was won. It, it the only thing that the, the government could arrest people for was the actual extraction, manufacturing, and distribute distribution and sale without a federal license. So here in Canada, you can grow mushrooms and coca and cacti. Use it for your own religious use. Um, actually, this week, the government of Canada announced that British Columbia is going to be doing, starting in 2023, they're going to be doing a trial project for probably two years, where every citizen and resident of British Columbia can possess up to two and a half grams of uh, cocaine, MDMA, meth, mushrooms and opiates so pretty much any psychedelic or uh, hard drug you can now have up to two and a half grams on now i'm not a huge fan of some of those drugs i do enjoy psychedelics but i have far too active of a head to be consuming most of those stimulants um but i think that the biggest danger to the casual drug consumer is the regulations itself. So at the start of Corona, um, the government of Canada closed down the borders and it became exceedingly difficult for drug smugglers to start bringing drugs into the state, into the country. What ended up happening was people started cutting their drugs um, with more dangerous adulterants, many times cutting things like opiates or cocaine with things like fentanyl. Um, and since the start of Corona the pandemic, there's actually been an exponential increase in overdoses because of the lack of clean drug supply to the drug con uh, consumer communities. Magical hey. mushroom luchador. Yeah. That was in uh, Vancouver. <laughs> that, that on the beach? You go up to the beach for 420? Festival on 420, yeah. Mm -hmm. awesome um, that was amazing magical mushroom luchadors <laughs> yeah totally totally um now ironically enough you you actually mentioned 150 151 for mushroom extract um i i like ethanol ethanolic tinctures of mushrooms um there's also a great way that i heard you could extract mushrooms from paul stamets um I've heard the ice water tech, and then I've had good luck with the 70% ethanol, 30% water tech. Yeah, that's what I found is that the tinctures have the longest shelf stability um, because of the alcohol. But if you're going to be consuming it in a relatively short fashion, the ice water probably has the most efficacy short term. 
So what Paul Stamets mentioned in one of his videos is actually doing a essentially a bubble hash extraction, but you know, taking taking mushrooms, ground mushrooms, burying it in ice. As that ice melts, the water will actually extract the psilocin psilocybin out, and then you can essentially refreeze that water, make blue ice cubes, and as he says, bring your blue ice cubes to Burning Man. Um, Alternatively, you could I mean, hypothetically vacuum distill off your water or your ethanolic concentration or go through a slightly modified acid base extraction to produce a purified psilocin psilocybin uh, isolate crystalline structure. So, and yes, Paul is the man. Hey. Uh, <laughs> Giving away all the good secrets. Yeah. Well, and he's. That's just easy. I've met, I actually met him uh, for the first time down at the uh, Need to Grow premiere. That was super cool. You know what? If, if, if Paul giving away a secret saves the bees, we just might save the human. He may be the savior of humanity, right? Oh, no. Uh, I, was just, I was just joking on, the, on that part. I, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. So, um, um, what do I think about using inoculated rice and not full body fruits in his tinctures? Um, I feel the same way about using inoculated grains to grow mushrooms as I, as I do about using hydroponics to grow cannabis. So yes, technically, according to the chemist in me, if I grow hydroponic nutrients, rock wool plants, I can grow cannabis. Looking historically at the analytical results of hydroponically grown cannabis, as opposed to cannabis grown in a biodynamic soil, Generally speaking, the, the more biodynamic the soil is, the more beneficial bacteria contributing to the microbiome, the greater concentration of terpenes and polyphenols there are. So can you produce mushrooms using grain, rice? Absolutely. Is it still producing those beneficial polyphenols that are very beneficial and used? Yes. In my personal opinion, and I have not done the analytical documentation to prove this, but in my personal opinion, a mushroom cultivated in a forest, in its natural occurring habitat, on its natural occurring substrate, whether it be a log or whatever manure, I think that it's going to, because it's closer to its where it evolved, it's going to have a greater source of those pre terpenoid precursors or polyphenol precursors, allowing to the wild cultured mushrooms or cannabis to produce a more biodiverse, thus more efficacious uh, mushroom. It's going to have more of those compounds that we're specifically looking for. Not even um, that. I think it works similar to cannabis. You know, mushrooms have triterpenes and then, you know, same way that cannabis has regular terpenes and they produce more when they have that more biodiverse stuff to defend against. That's, for instance, why the, the older living mushrooms are better for your own immune health because they have, they have to live a lot longer. They have to defend against many, a lot more different types of species. You know, it's the same kind of, same kind of thing, thinking, you know, uh, down that space. Yeah, and, and while the psilocybin content actually goes down, from small mushrooms to maturity, those tricyclic terpenoids actually goes up. So they, and to be honest, that's something that needs to be researched at a university level. Um, 
you know, I, I can do extractions on many different types of mushrooms. However, in order to actually quantify, you know, make medical claims, what needs to be done is, and I hate to say this because it's a ton of work, university researchers need to be able to take those mushrooms, I hate to say this, isolate in each individual compound, do the research to say, hey, here's what this compound does, here's what this compound does, this compound, does, all the way across the board, and then go through and say, hey, here's what we know that these, these groups of compounds do, these groups of compounds do, these groups of compounds do. We find this group and this group in this class of mushrooms, et cetera. So we can start to infer that, hey, these, this class of mushrooms is going to contain this and this and this, probably best for this class of medical conditions, et cetera, depending on the types of mushrooms. I, Same I thing's wish, gonna be I wish so bad they would allow for the, um, you know, synergistic type of, of testing because you know just as well as i do many of these terpenes once you start to combine them behave completely differently in terms of efficacy and it gets you know hard to kind of say well this plus this is does this but if you combine them it does this other thing and that's when it gets kind of weird how do you explain that to people that have such a so, narrow way of thinking it's so frustrating the, the best way to explain it is that the nutraceuticals are probably going to be nutraceuticals and herbal supplements are probably going to be more efficacious than the pharmaceutical isolates. So, um, you know, we, we've talked earlier about the entourage effects. There's going to be a variety of terpenes that actually can make cannabis more efficacious. The same thing is going to be true with the mushrooms. You know, even though there's a couple of key compounds that we may be looking for, that complex biodiverse um, terpene, terpene, the fungal terpene um, is going to actually allow for a much more efficacious thing. Now, with that said, there's, there's levels to the game, right? Um, the FDA and pharma, the pharmaceutical industry and the whole insurance industry in and of itself has really been regulated to a point that they're real monomolecular focused. However, the nutraceutical industry and the herbal supplement industry are industries that aren't as heavily regulated as the pharmaceutical industry and do allow the complexity of entourage and all the variety of active compounds. So I am a big proponent of a, you know, relatively organic lifestyle um, and having a biodynamic diet, as well as having, you know, I personally would prefer to treat myself using herbs than using pharmaceuticals. However, there's a, you know, somebody who's in the hospital, doctors are going to prefer to use that as monomolecular. So there's going to be kind of spectrums. I think the everyday recreational consumer looking at wellness should be looking at herbal supplements as that, you know, wellness looks at, okay, I'm going to try and, you know, treat some of my conditions by myself. Then you start like, talking to a nutritionalist and maybe a home, homeopathic doctor who can supplement your uh, herbal supplements with some sort of nutraceutical. And then if that doesn't work, then we start getting the chemists involved and getting into the pharmaceutical realm. Um, so I, I'm a big fan of uh, that nutraceutical and herbal supplement side. Uh, for the people that are actually interested in it, um, there's a great paper that's called uh, traversing the, the 
fungal terpone. Um, yeah, terpenome. Let me, I got it actually on my internet. So excuse me while I turn off my camera for a second, I'll pull it up, no give worries. you the author's name. Um, so yeah, you can easily access this online on NCIB, but traverse, Traversing the Fungal Terpenome by Maureen Quinn, Christopher Flynn, and Claudette Schmidt-Dannert um, is a great paper that actually talks, and talks about how different fungi are producing different terpenes, different polyphenols in a very similar method to the way that cannabinoids are producing um, terpenes. So Steve, I see you put the link to that in the YouTube chat. So yeah, feel free. And same with you, Sir Dirty. Thank you guys very much. Uh, and then, yeah, Chad, you mentioned the 2011 Taming the THC. Um, that actually is a paper written by Dr. Russo et al., a couple other authors. And what that talked about was, you know, hey, here's what THC can do, but here's what all the other terpenes within the cannabis plant can do. Um, uh, so, so last on the show, you uh, graced us with some super cool knowledge about how uh, there was kind of a correlation between PM and CBL, I believe it was. Um, do you have any other uh, insights into some of the different um, things that you've seen in correlations with some of the weirder cannabinoids? Yeah, so um, I haven't been able to do a lot of research on the enzymatic degradation of the cannabinoids recently, but I have actually been doing some research on photonics. So there was a this talk a couple of years ago that I heard at the Emerald Cup that really piqued an interest in one of the things that was said. And essentially what I believe it was SC Labs was doing a high level GIS study on all the entries to the Emerald Cup. And what they had found was that, you know, I think it was 2017 or 2018 that they did this paper, but what they had found was that, you know, farms that were downwind from many of the forest fires were showing a higher, higher correlation for failing things like aerobic microbial counts in their cultivars, in their lots that they submitted into the Emerald Cup. So that year was a really bad year for forest fires in California. And they started putting on an ArcGIS, which is basically a big map and saying, hey, here's all the farms that started failing for these microbials. They were growing the same strains as other farms. But when we look at these farms specifically, they were failing for microbials. Well, why, why is that? Well, it looks like these farms happen to be downwind of forest fires. Well, Forest fires are going to be burning massive amounts of cellulose and plant material and releasing cellulose, plant material, and spores into the air in the form of ash. Depending on how hot that fire is, it may not sterilize all the bacterial or mold spores. So when that ash then precipitates and falls out of the air downwind, if it falls onto a cannabis plant, you may actually be introducing things like mold spores into the cannabis um, 
that can then cause your crop to fail for microbial testing in that fall harvest. Um, so what we ended up seeing was that um, when, when I heard that, I was like, oh yeah, these guys are failing for uh, microbial content. That, that's unfortunate. What I also found, what I've also found interesting was that some of these farms that were growing clones were exhibiting different cannabinoid contents than the farms that were not failing for these aerobic bacteria. So what was hypothesized at the time was that there is likely some of some of form of enzymatic degradation where these uh, bacteria or fungi or molds that are growing on the plant are, may actually be degrading the cannabinoids. One that was identified was a cannabinoid uh, called CBL. Um, I've also seen CBGM and CBC produced on uh, failed microbial crops at a higher percentage than non-failed microbial crops. So that's something that's unfortunately going to require a well-funded farm to proactively contaminate or inoculate their crops. But while that's not, while I haven't done, heard that done yet for bacteria, I have heard that done for pesticides where farms are basically trying to get pesticides approved on cannabis, but they have to spray the pan cannabis and then test it after it's been harvested, determine at which level it's safe, et cetera. Same thing's gonna have to be done with cannabis. Um, hasn't been done yet, but it has been done in the wine industry. Um, so some of the listeners to this show may drink wine. There is actually a type of wine called ice wine or sweet wine. And what will actually happen- Tortelage is my favorite of those. Yeah, I guess that's totally. So what they will actually do is, in order to increase the sugar content is actually introduce um, a bacteria that is not good for cannabis, but when they spray that bacteria onto the grapes, it'll actually help metabolize some of the starches in those grapes into sugars. When they, so you know, inoculate botrytis, I believe it's botrytis, inoculate botrytis onto your grapevines. The botrytis then helps metabolize the starches into sugar. When you harvest that botrytis-laden grapes, you're going to have a higher sugar content in your grape juice. When you then ferment that higher sugar content um, grape juice into wine, it's going to end up producing a wine that has not only higher alcohol content, but also higher sugar content, producing things like the Gersaminers and Rieslings um, that also have you know, a higher sugar content, but also a slightly sweeter taste. So they're oftentimes consumed for desserts because of, because of the higher sugar content. Very um, smooth, and then, very smooth. yeah, great, smooth, uh, but it's, you know, that's really only done in places that oftentimes have wet falls. Yet there's another thing that may affect the terpene content in the uh, wine industry, which is the mineral content of the soil. So the, you know, many people who are wine consumers will actually start to learn that, you know, there's different mineral, mineralities of the 
Mm. Yeah, totally. I'm going to have to find this. Um, so when I grow, say, a Merlot on a sandstone soil or a limestone soil, it's going to produce a more tawny, um, which is kind of a richer, dust, richer, darker, and chalkier taste, as opposed to if I grow that same Merlot grape on a granitic soil. And it has to do with, you know, essentially as the plants and as the soil bacteria are breaking down the, the minerals, form, forming clay, forming clay complexes with either calcium or magnesium, those subtle mineral contents will actually change the cation exchange capacity of those soils, allowing those soils to hold different nutrients for a different amount of time and allowing the fungi and bacteria to then exchange those sugar, uh, those minerals in exchange for sugar with those plants. So just like there's different wine producing regions, um, you know, growing things like champagne in the Champagne Valley or Burgundy in the Burgundy Valley, you know, or the red wines in the dry climates of Spain and Northern California, some of the great white wines that are grown in places like Washington and uh, BC, each of these regions has a different mineral content and environment that allows for the best production of a specific grape. And I think the same thing's gonna be true with cannabis. There's gonna be different regions that are able to produce cannabis cultivars based on things like the mineral content, the terpene content and the nutrient content of the minerals in the soil, as well as the compost from the environment. As an example, um, here in BC, we have lots of pine trees. So as pine trees are harvested and sent through the lumber mill, it produces a wood chip and that wood chip is oftentimes used as a pine mulch. If I spread pine mulch that's high in pinene, as the fungi break down that pine mulch into uh, starches and sugars and all these other compounds, there's gonna be a greater than nominal average percentage of pinene in that mulch that can then be transported via the fungal microbiome into the cannabis plant in exchange for sugar because fungi don't photosynthesize, but they will gladly trade minerals and terpenoid precursors in exchange for sugar from the plants. Whereas, you know, places like Napa Valley, uh, California are, has tons of grape compost I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, chat. I see it now. Uh, advertising uh, something that we won't mention on on video, but uh, it's just had a completely ridiculous name that was too funny not to mention. <laughs> I didn't mean to derail the show. So, by uh, inoculating your mulch with a higher percentage of, let's call it, compost, you can depending on what comp what biomass goes into that compost and what fungi are decomposing that you might be able to produce a beautiful girl or you might be able to produce a funky girl so depending on the mineral content and soil content and um compost organic compost content of the soil you're actually going to have different regions throughout the world 
Chad, you hit it on the head, producing different appellations. And those different appellations are going to be able to produce different terpene profiles that are unique to those different regions. So, you know, here in BC, I'm actually working at a farm. Three sides of the farm have blueberry fields. And this farm has actually one, a couple of strains that have blueberry in it, including a blue dream. I got so tired of blue dream by 2010 that I thought I would never grow it again. Uh, honestly, there's a strain here at this facility that's a blue dream and it tastes more like a blueberry than it does a blue dream. Um, and it's a wonderful representation of the flavor. I know I have a couple of buddies who run other farms that are have a, sl a slightly different mineral content in their soil. There's, they're not in the valley, they're up in the mountains a bit. And they produce a blueberry flavored strain that has a much more fuely back end, whereas the blueberry grown in the Fraser Valley oftentimes has more of a sweeter back end. Um, so you're going to end up having kind of different regions producing different strains, whether it be based on the environment, right? I'm, I love haze plants. I grew a lamb spread haze a year and a half ago that harvested in the third week of January. Um, you can't really harvest, can't really grow third week of January plants here in beach, British Columbia. So I had to actually grow it on my patio and then move it from my patio into the living room where I had a 12 foot tall plant growing in my patio until middle of January when I harvested it. So <laughs> something like a lamb's, what is that? Lamb's bread haze that I crossed with a garlic, uh, made a garlic bread haze, lamb's bread haze crossed with GMO on haze. Um, that strain was a wonderful strain to smoke, very stimulating, probably ev more evolutionary adapted to grow in a more equatorial climate. Um, whereas some of those more indica strains, more uh, hybrid strains, are gonna, or strains evolved in the Hindu Kush mountains or in the uh, high altitude mountains of California are probably going to be growing better in places like the Rockies or the Kootenays. Um, places here where we're at in Vancouver, we're a very coastal climate. So we don't have to deal with as cold of the winters. We can run longer season strains, but we have to have strains that are very robust against high humidity because here in Vancouver, it starts raining in September and doesn't stop until April or May. Um, so if you have a strain that has real broad leaves and thin waxy cuticles susceptible to mold or mildews, you're not going to have a good time growing that outside unless if it's a you know, early finishing autoflower hybrid. Um, so what you'll end up seeing is there's going to be some of those, you know, strains that evolve to grow in different regions and different one, different one of those regions, um, would end up being able to produce a uh, different terpene profile that's really unique. That's it, mods. If you use a frankincense mulch to cultivate and grow some wild terps, let me know. I want to try it. I love frankincense terps. Um, and yeah, I've actually talked to a couple of farms that are on the kind of dem pure path of regenerative farming. And that's actually what they're starting to incorporate. Um, I actually had a conversation with one of my business partners last week, and she was asking, you know, what, what differentiates a craft producer from a LP? Well, I could use the 
very narrow government defi definition here in Canada. They said if you're under 200 square meters, which is 2152 square feet, you're a craft producer. Well, that really doesn't take into Appalachian very much, right? And that opens up the door for craft producers growing, growing hydroponic mids. And just because they got a small grow, they can call it craft. Well, I'm going to take that a step further. It's craft also farmers. Small, but it's hard to be sustainable as far as labor and all the rest of it by the time you actually do it at that scale. I've worked with a couple yeah, of people. Yeah, totally. So, pinch the pennies. Um, so, what I think. What I consider craft is not so much the size of your grow, but how you're tailoring that grow to the cannabis that you're cultivating, right? So if you, if you have a, you know, relatively large grow, but you have it split up where, hey, this greenhouse is growing our sativa dominant strains. I've custom tailored the nutrients that I've amended into the soil specifically for that sativa. I've custom tailored the lighting spectrum because I have a tunable LED. It's gonna produce a bluer spectrum of light that's closer to the equatorial sunlight. And I'm gonna have that whole greenhouse be my sativa greenhouse. Next to it is gonna be my indica greenhouse or my CBD greenhouse. There's actually light spectrums that I found in the 720 to 750 nanometer range that will upregulate the CBDA synthase and downregulate the THCA synthase. What's that mean? CBD strains grown closer to the equator should produce more THC and CBD strains grown farther away from the equator should produce more CBD. Uh, that's why we're seeing hemp farmers in the Southeast growing hemp strains that grow great in Oregon, but end up having too much THC when they grow them close to the equator. The blue spectrum actually upregulates the THC production. The red spectrum upregulates the CBDA synthase uh, enzymes. So there's going to be different regions producing different trichromes, uh, different gland, uh, essential oils, as well as there's going to be different, for example, mulches or composts that are going to provide those bacteria, the different precursors to allow for the production of a variety of different turkey profiles. Um, I know a lot of people have been growing chamomile. Is it chamomile and a couple of other crops specifically with it? I'm a big fan of, of growing thyme and thyme with thymol to help discourage pests, but I know there's as a mulch yeah. cover crop. Yeah, cat catnip, um, thyme, marigolds also naturally produce pyrethrins. Um, I like to do marigolds at the end of my hedgerows uh, because it's going to essentially act as a buffer. So at the end of each of the hedgerows, I like to do a bean plant and marigold plant and sunflower. The marigold is going to naturally produce pyrethrins. The bean plant is going to act as a trap plant. Uh, so any bugs that are coming in from the neighbors, I'll see them on that bean plant before I see them on my cannabis plant. And then I can yank out the bee plant, move it on. And then the sunflower primarily because it attracts the beneficial uh, insect eating birds. Um, so there, there's actually some benefit to having birds in your property because hey, they'll eat the mosquitoes, but they'll also eat some of the things like the aphids and uh, aphids, springtails, um, white flies, and grasshoppers. You? There you go, grasshoppers, yeah. Um, pretty much anything that floats flies, right? Um, and then if you got things like slugs, getting slugs or snails, getting ducks, ducks in your grow is always beneficial. Um, so... 
And ducks are amazing if you're doing any kind of larger scale or yeah, general. Totally. They, they kick ass. Totally, totally. Yeah, I've, seen, I've actually seen more more ducks, but not enough, right? I think that that's going to be something that actually contributes to your terroir, right? Because you now have ducks that are acting as a anti-pest, but they're also depositing a uh, phosphate-rich uh, manure into your environment. Um, some of the more regulated uh, authority having jurisdictions don't like having that biodynamic system. You know, in the early days of Washington, they had a zero tolerance on all aerobic bacteria, which made compost teas almost impossible to apply. Since then, they've actually reduced that level, allowed some level of acceptable level of aerobic bacteria. But for the better part of it, it's, you know, many of those organic methodologies that were allowed on, allowed and very beneficial to the cannabis plant ecosystem because they don't have the data, because they don't ha haven't gone through the necessary regulatory approvals, they become a lot more harder to get approved within the federally regulated system. You know, Health Canada doesn't want me to make a compost tea and spray it on the plants because they're afraid that I might make E. coli compost tea. Now, I'm pretty good at making compost tea and I know how to do, do the scope. That was a great video, by the way, the other day setting up the scope. Check that on Potent Ponics. Um, if you guys don't have a scope, get a scope. You need a scope for identifying your bugs, beneficial or otherwise. You need a scope for identifying your bacteria. Yeah. I forgot to bring it with me, but I actually have a handheld scope. Looks like an old one of those old flip movie cameras but it, it's got a screen on it. So I can actually walk around in my grow, just like those dino light. It's basically a dino light with its own screen on it. And I can actually go up to it and look on the screen at my plants while they're, look, while they're on the plant. And then as I, as I walk those hedgerows, I can actually say, hey, here's, I see, I see some stippling on the leaf over there. Let me, go, let me go scope it, right? And then I don't actually have to worry about picking that leaf off, going back to my office or wherever the scope uh, microscope is and then putting it under there. Um, for sure. Yeah. yeah. That, that's super cool. Yeah, no, I, uh, we'll be doing a whole bunch of videos on KNF stuff. That was kind of, uh, everything that could go wrong, did go wrong shooting that video just about, but it was pretty funny. Um, so I, I see a comment from Southern grower ducks rock rock, but they like to eat too many worms than pigs. You need to apply more mulch, bro. If, if, if your ducks are able to get to your worms, apply more mulch because the worms will climb up into your mulch layer, but they won't climb all the way through it unless if they're looking for food. So yeah, we, I love ducks and yeah, they do, they do eat my, they do eat my worms, but when I see them going for worms instead of aphids or, you know, eat, eat ducks will even eat the, uh, little shitty leaves and plant matter. If, um, uh, little grasses growing between the plants. So I love ducks. They're, they're awesome, but they will eat your worms. So you want to keep applying mulch. Um, I've, for all the regenerative farmers out there, I've got a great tip for mulch. Um, here in the regulated industry, you actually have to destroy all of your plant byproduct. 
So we have a giant wood chipper here that every time we harvest plant material, pick leaves off, we have to the harvest plants, uh, buck stems. We have biomass, uh, make bubble hash, make dry sift. We have spent biomass. That spent biomass gets sent through a wood chipper. Well, you could just take that wood chipped biomass and send it to your local compost company who's then going to mix it with a bunch of other stuff, turn it into soil and sell it back to you. Or you can make it into mulch yourself. So what I do on my personal medical home grow is actually uh, is grind up the hemp stems or the cannabis stems, send them through a wood chipper, grind up the plants and leaves, send it through a wood chipper. And then I'll do a mix of 30% leaves, 30% stems, and generally 20 to 30% other amendments. So compost, oyster shell, lobster shell, and hemp herds. Um, and then biocache, a bunch of other amendments depending on the soil nutrient test. So rather than amending my soil each round, what I do is when I do my big fields, I just apply mulch. And that mulch has all the amendments for next year. So I don't have to make amendments during my summer when I'm growing fields. I just take a some I towards the end of the season, I take a soil sample, depending on what nutrients are low in that field. As I'm chipping the wood, chipping the stalks and uh, wood chipping and all the leaves that got pulled off. I've got two thirds of the, all the ingredients going into my mulch. And now I just got to know how, how much of the other amendments I got to add and essentially rebuild the soil surface. And then obviously the following year, you're going to get a uh, cover crop growing through it. As that cover crop dies off, the worms will slowly eat through the mulch, eat through the cover crop. And you get a cycle where you're slowly building layers and layers and layers to it. So um i just got a message i actually got to go do work stuff so okay. let's let's wrap it up maybe in the next two three minutes does anybody have any other questions before i actually have to the only uh question i had is that you had a chance to come out and, and take one of the in-person classes that we taught out at josh uh, i don't know if you want to touch on that real quick for a second uh if not that's yeah so I, I love Josh. Josh's farm, beautiful little farm. I mean, I, even though I've been cultivating cannabis for going on 15 years, I, I can't say that I've ever com commercially run an aquaponic farm. Um, done hydroponic, done aeroponic, done organic, done the whole gamut, but I've never grown it with fish. So even I was had the opportunity to go out to visit one of your early classes at uh, Dutch Bloom's farm in Washington. And we got to go, let's see, we built a couple of ponds. We did some cover cropping. We did some composting. We made some IMO one through four, tons of fun stuff, tons of great times. Everybody that's learning, because even myself, I've been growing for going on 15 years, running publicly traded companies for five years, running licensed labs for a decade. I learned tons of stuff during that class and it was stuff that like I thought I had already partially knew, but you know, th things like making WCA um, water, 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 soluble calcium and stuff like that, just little tips and trips, you know, 
when I when as growers start to transition growing more and more and more, the cost to produce becomes much more critical. If I'm trying to produce a kilo of CBD isolate for under 300 bucks, as opposed to a kilo of flour that I can sell for 3000, if I'm trying to produce that kilo of ultra purified extract at that low cost, I have to be as sustainable as possible. So being able to derive nutrients from our local ecosystem, incorporate that Appalachia into our grow and learning how to cycle those nutrients efficiently can dramatically, dramatically reduce the cost of operations. Because if you can cut down the amount of money you're spending on soil, amount of money you're spending on light, using things like recycling water through the aquaponics or SIPs or good water management, I've seen growers, publicly traded growers reduce their cost by 70%. So you're talking about growers that used to produce flour at say two bucks a gram, now being able to produce it for under 40 or 50 cents a gram. And that can make or break a publicly traded company. If a publicly traded company is not producing cannabis for under $2 a gram this year and under a dollar a gram in three years from now, they're going to go out of business. And I've seen publicly traded companies that are producing cannabis right now for $1.80 a gram. Um, I also know guys that are producing cannabis sustainably, regeneratively, better quality cannabis for under a dime a gram. So there's going to be a whole gamut of costs to produce, but I think what's going to give many of the small producers that are watching this film, the tools to succeed are going to be the knowledge of how to cycle nutrients sustainably so that you don't have to buy soil. You don't have to buy nutrients. You don't have to buy inoculants every season or every cycle. I can't count the number of publicly traded grows that buy, so buy soil do a mild amendment, use the soil once, and throw it into a giant pile out back. I, I, it disgusts me when I see these giant piles of soil. And I, to me, that's their second most valuable asset. Number one most valuable is your employees. You, you have to pay to retrain your employees. And the last thing you want to have is employees bad-mouthing your company. Beyond your labor, the second most in cultivation is your terroir. So you cannot be a craft producer if you're using your soil once and throwing it away or growing in hydro. If you're not incorporating the natural minerals, you're going to end up producing a lower grade product. So wonderful. So how can people find you and find out more information if they want to learn more from the different wonderful knowledge that you have? Uh, you've been on the show once or twice before. You people can find those episodes. I apologize for not looking up the numbers before that, but you can certainly yep. search Black I'm, West and Phonics. I'm a ghost within the industry. I try and stay a ghost just to avoid the haters because stress induces my epilepsy. So you can, if guys have any questions, you can find me on Facebook, MC West. You can find me on Instagram, west.mc. Um, you can email me west.michael.c at gmail.com. If you're a licensed producer or trying to get a license, feel free. Um, and then if you're looking at, if you're in Canada, please buy cannabis. Um, some of the brands that I've been affiliated with, Embark, they're producing the Hank brand, Hazel brand, Meridian brands. 
Uh, Bev Canning acquired them this spring. So they're producing uh, Keef Cola here in Canada. I'm also working with Simply Bear in 1964 and Lab Theory through the Rubicon publicly traded company. And coming up this fall, I'm going to be bringing a co-op of micro producers to market um, through a company called Antidote. So that'll, that'll be kind of a co-op manufacturer packager for a bunch of the micros up in uh, the Kootenays. If you're down in the States, um, whole gamut of different companies you can support. Um, but none of them pay me to tell, tell you to support them. So support that, support them. If you like supporting corporate weed, if you don't support what I always tell people is find, find the best organic, sustainable local producer you can and empower them to do the best. Talk good things about them. Um, I I'm growing with, I'm Rubicon here is one of the largest organic certified farms in North America, but I want to help everyone get organic certified and licensed because that's where we're going to really see the quality start to get produced. So thank you so much for your time. It's always a pleasure having you on. You're uh, certainly one of our favorite guests to have on the show. And certainly, in my opinion, the guru of gurus when it comes to extraction. So thank you so much for, for coming on and, and giving us your time. Of course, Steve. All right, you guys. Well, I'll talk to you soon. And if when I make it down, if I don't see you guys at Joss Place in a couple months, we'll maybe see you at the Unicorn Cup this August. Awesome, man. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Cheers. Talk to you soon. Peace. It's always a, always a pleasure to have Mike on the show. Uh, really appreciate him taking the time to come on. And um, if you guys, uh, again, uh, check out his Instagram, among other, other things, uh, you can get his products through Embark and uh, the other companies that he mentioned there. Uh, at the end, um, if you guys are looking to learn more about aquaponic cannabis, I want to take the uh, the class uh, a longer version than the one that uh, he he took. Uh, you can check us out over at uh, apmjclass.com. Um, RDI and I have a huge uh, uh, class we put together over there. There's a ton of different topics that we've covered, uh, over six or seven hundred different uh, uh, talks on there. Uh, we're actually adding a whole bunch. I actually have a complete overhaul for all the pest management. Uh, that we'll be adding and then also offering as a separate class uh, by itself uh, for those that are interested in um, vegetable and regular gardens and aquaponics uh, we're going to be offering just that i'm going to kind of roll the advanced aquaponics class into a couple of different sections um, you'll be able to buy that as kind of uh, all the different sections or just individual topics uh, if you just want to you know cue in on something to try and uh, make it a little more affordable i know everybody doesn't have quite as much money as they they did before COVID, so we're trying to make things a little more affordable for people uh, and still allow the, the funding of continued research uh, down some of these topics. So um, uh, definitely looking forward to that. I just finished up the slide deck for that. Just kind of doing an editorial uh, uh, quick last sweep on it before we go ahead and record it. And then we'll get, it, get that out to you guys uh, here in the next couple of weeks. I'm also going to be working on a couple of other classes. We have a the uh, tropical fish class that we'll be putting together, the advanced class, a couple of other aquaponic classes that you know I used to teach back uh, back in the day, and then uh, kind of updating them now for uh, for some of the modern knowledge that we have now on aquaponics. All right, guys. Uh, next week we have the gentleman from BioAg will be with us, um, uh, so certainly looking forward to that. And. Um, yeah, we have some other cool guests in the queue. Uh, I won't spoil them, but we were certainly uh, keeping up on the uh, really awesome guests that we've had lately. Uh, uh, and uh, 
Yeah. Appreciate y'all. Um, the next uh, episode we have actually will be Tuesday. Uh, season uh, George will be back with us from um, Humboldt. She'll be talking about, you know, kind of an update on what's going on at her farm. They have a big tour and some other things going on out there. She's going to be talking to us about. So that'll be back on Tuesday uh, at uh, 7.30 p.m. Uh, will be our next episode. All right, guys, take it easy. You can find us on SoundCloud, YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, all the things. Uh, you can watch us live on YouTube. I will have a bunch of additional YouTube content. We'll be launching the Patreon soon. I actually have the, the, the microscope video. I will be relaunching the microscope video in a little bit better edited format with less bloopers uh, as I'm trying to record the damn thing um, because everything that went wrong could go wrong when we tried to record it the first time, but I'll leave it up because it's a pretty funny watch uh, for everybody. Uh, but uh, we're going to re-record that and get that a little bit more slick and get that up there. And then we're going to have on the Patreon a bunch of breakdowns and a whole bunch of stuff. So all the stuff from the Patreon will be available for free on the YouTube channel. But we're going to have kind of a 60 or 90 day um, uh, advanced thing. So if you want to find the latest stuff, you can find it on the YouTube, uh, on the Patreon. And then everything will still end up on the YouTube uh, either way. So, um, you know, don't feel like you're going to miss out uh, if you can't afford it. But uh just trying to help uh, monetize the uh, the content production because I have a bunch of stuff I want to start doing, um, but I want to kind of have it help fund itself a little bit uh, to get into some of this. But we're going to have the first thing that we're going to do is a whole comparison of lactobacillus. So I have water kefir. I have kefir coming from Josh from Dutch Blooms. He's sending me some of the stuff that he has with his lactobacillus. I have some regular store-bought kefir grains. I have some powdered lactobacillus. I have some probiotics that you can get from the pharmaceutical store. So we're going to do all those separately. Uh, we're going to inoculate them into jars and containers. We're going to see which one grows fastest. We're going to look at them together under the microscope and do kind of an in-depth analysis on the different lactobacillus uh, starter cultures uh, and then look into the plant efficacy of that afterwards. So um, it's going to be a really cool way to, to break that down, look into the speeds of colonization of lactobacillus and some of the other cool things that are I really haven't seen done in, the, in kind of the KNF space. And I'm kind of, I don't want to like do the same stuff that some of my friends are doing in the KNF space. So I'm trying to do a little bit different, unique content. Um, and I think that's definitely going to fit that fit that space as well and, and start off with that. And then I want to get into IMOs and doing a lot of microscope work with that and then liquid IMOs uh, and IPMO. Uh, so we're, we're going to, you know, kind of in, in that order. So um, uh, looking forward to that as well. I have all the lactobacillus here now. So uh, uh, this weekend, I'm going to start doing the filming for the lactobacillus. So looking forward to that. All right, guys, uh, thanks for watching again. Uh, Spotify, YouTube, iTunes. Uh, whatever it is that you like enjoying listening to the show on. Uh, we'll catch you guys again on Tuesday.